Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Troy, I'm going to ask you something for the fourth motherfucking time, and I actually expect you to answer it. What is your favorite scary movie? It is the fourth time we have asked this question to our fans. And you know what? I want a goddamn motherfucking answer from you. Because you know what, Troy? I don't know if our fans actually know what you consider to be your main favorite. What is your favorite scary movie, Troy? (laughs) They absolutely know. We have discussed this at length, what my favorite scary movie is. We even did an episode on this film where I made it very clear it was my favorite scary movie, and that's Black Christmas, Yes, but the original. You made it clear to our original core base of fans way back when. I do like to think now, lately, um, we have a a lot of brand new listeners, and I actually wanted to just take a moment to thank everybody. Uh, who's joined us recently in the last few months, because we're seeing a lot of support and we love it and we thank you for it. Um, But how cool to kind of just revisit a a, a question that has become infamous (laughs) associated with the series we're going to jump back into today. Yeah, it's become, I mean, it's become a a pop culture, embedded in pop culture. What's your favorite scary movie? We've heard it over and over again with these films and you know, here we are, we've arrived at, at number four and, you know, I'm super excited to get started discussing this film. It's a franchise that, you know, I, I think there's a lot of people that, that love the franchise. And then I see a lot of people that really shit on the franchise. And, uh, I was just reading, you know, as I was, I was, I was waiting for you to log on. I was just scrolling through, uh, through Facebook, through some of the horror groups that I belong to. And there was just right there. So ironic, the timing that somebody had posted that, Oh my God, the scream films are the worst horror film franchise out there. Blah, 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 blah. And it's really interesting because I have seen, while I've seen a resurgence of popularity with the scream films, I've also seen like a resurgence of, of hate for them, which surprises me. And, And I think, you know, a lot of it, and I hate to be this like, Oh, I'm, you know, an old man shaking his fist, but I think maybe a lot of the, the negativity towards the franchise may come from fans that are a little on the younger side who really didn't experience these films when they, the, the first film and the second film, when they first hit theaters to know just really what a cultural phenomena these films were and what, and what they did to ignite a very dead genre. So looking at them now from the perspective of, of like what horror is popular with, with kids now and what types of movies are popular with, with the younger crowds, I can see where maybe people would watch these films and, and say, oh, these are, these are stupid. These are ridiculous. They don't recognize like the groundbreaking script that was the original screen, right? Yeah, I, I think that it, for a moment, it almost felt like Scream became not cool in a way. And unfortunately, that 
is associated with this kind of era because this is the one film in the series, the one we're going to cover here today, is the one film in the series that really wasn't like set in the box office on fire, at least, you know, by slasher standards. Uh, the Scream movies are always relatively successful. Um, and, and this one, for some reason, was not. I really think it was a matter of timing, um, unfortunately, because I've got to say, man, I, I am I am eager, eagerly anticipating this conversation with you because I got feelings on this one. You know, me too. And, you know, that is one thing that has to be acknowledged is the fact that this film is by far the least performing film box office wise of the franchise. Every other film in this fr- franchise uh, has grossed almost, if not $100 million, very close to it. We know Scream 6 uh, had became the highest grossing film of the franchise. I know inflation, but still it made $107 million at the box office. Scream 3, the last one, m- made like $99 million. It was so close to hitting the... Um, and I say the last one, I mean the last one before part four, obviously. Um, you know, it, it almost it almost hit uh, $100 million at the domestic box office. This this film, Roger, this ended up barely, barely even making $40 million at the domestic box office. And I do feel like that was, there was sort of a positive and a negative to that. The negative is that it really stained the franchise and people looked at scream as being like you said not cool anymore but on the flip side of that it did allow several years to pass and and the franchise to be handed over to new filmmakers who then were able to revitalize it along with the help of kevin williamson and the original cast and give the fans something that felt fresh but also super familiar and i don't know if that would have happened um if Scream 4 would have been a massive success, I w- I'm afraid that their direction that the franchise would have taken would have been something that we might not have appreciated as Scream fans as much as we do with the last two films. Um, and yes, you are right. This came out in 2011, which, God, I I don't know why they waited so long to follow up Scream 3 with this one. Uh, I know Scream 3, you know, got a lot of negativity at the critical, critical, negative, critical reception. It did well at the box office still, but, you know, and, and and it was always, oh, we're closing out the trilogy, but God, to wait like 10, you know, 10 years after the fact and then give us Scream 4 with almost no, you know, buildup or promotion, proper promotion for it. I think fans of the original films had kind of moved on and. Um, you know, what was popular was the, the, the torture poor and the paranormal stuff. So it just, it was unfortunate timing for scream four, but, but I think that the release of scream five and scream six has allowed people to go back and revisit four and realize, you know what, this actually isn't all that fucking bad. Oh no. I mean, listen, I'm going to say right now that I think one of the biggest downfalls that this film had going into the, the box office is it has, of the whole series, some of the worst fucking promotional material. I mean, honestly, I've ever seen some of those posters where they just they grab screen caps, screen grabs a Hayden Penetier, just like in the middle of conversation. <laughs> I mean, like it, it, looks, it looks like literally they're just taking stills from the movie because they don't even have promo photos of the characters. I mean, some of those posters just, I remember being kind of blown away just by how bad some of the promo art was. But I, I think it's it's a bummer, you know, because 
sitting down and revisiting all of these films with you um, has given me such a great, like, kind of newfound appreciation because I'm really analyzing them. But thus far, out of the films we've covered in this series, I walked away feeling, I would say, the absolute just most joy out of watching this film out of all of them thus far. And I am so, so, so eager to talk about this film with you because my experience watching it was just delightful. And I'm really curious to hear some feedback from a lot of our fans because I know there are mixed feelings on this film. But for me, as a fan of slashers and somebody who wants to be entertained, I mean, I'm sorry, this movie gives me everything I want and then some. It gives me so much. And I, I don't know. I, It's rare that I come into a review really being like, fuck yeah, Troy. Let's fucking do this. Let's fucking review this movie. But I genuinely feel that level of excitement about to talk about this film with you because I really am just fond as fuck about this movie. Well, guys, if you haven't guessed, we are talking about Scream Four, and you know, if you haven't listened to our first or our previous episodes, we've we've covered Scream, we covered Scream Two with the lovely Tyler Jensen, and we recently did Scream Three. Go back and give them a listen. I think it'll give you a lot of perspective on our thoughts about the franchise as a whole because we do get into that. Um, but Scream Four, Roger, I think we should get we should get right into it, honestly, because yeah, there's going to be a lot to talk about with this film, I think, and. Um, you know, I, I, I remember seeing this on opening day in the theater and, you know, I always God, every time you see, and I just, I just remember the feeling of being in the theater and this was the same with like scream Two, scream three, not so much, but like scream four sitting in the theater. And when you hear that fuck, you see that dimension logo pop up on the screen and you hear the phone ring. What a fucking rush. Do you get that? Do you get that rush? I've gotten it. I got, I remember getting it with scream Two. I remember getting it with, I mean, it's, you know, this, this film to me, and we'll talk about this opening scene because it's probably the most subversive opening scene of the entire, uh, franchise. And, you know, I remember like the reactions in the audience with, with this opening scene, people were just like having a blast with it. And it, it's clever. Uh, I, I'm glad they 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 tried to, while stay true to the to the feeling of of the original Scream film with the opening, they did something completely different with the route they took, and what you have is basically three different opening scenes. Two of them are from Stab Seven, right? And it's such a clever way to start the film. You get the first opening scene with. Um, Sherry and Trudy played by Lucy Hale and Shanae Grimes. Can we also just mention the cast of this film? Oh yeah. I mean, I mean, even, even these three separate opening scene segments, they got some pretty popular uh, actresses, young actresses at the time to come in and, and take these roles. I mean, you got fucking Oscar winning actress, Anna Paquin for crying out loud. I will say this. I will say this. I will worship this film thoroughly, this review, for an array of reasons. The one thing that doesn't hit me as strong as a lot of the other films within this franchise is, truthfully for me, is the structure of the opening. 
not because I don't think it's a fun and very meta approach to the opening of this film franchise, uh, you know, this entry within. Um, it's the fact that, like, because it jumps from what is, it jumps from what is a group of characters to another group of characters to then another group of characters. It does this technically three, three separate individual groups, um, transitioning the focus so that you spend significantly less time with each group than you do within the opening of what is honestly most every other film in the franchise. You, you tend to meet, you know, a duo or a group of characters at one focal individual. Normally the focus is on them. It follows them consistently throughout the process of them getting killed, but you spend time with them. That's why, you know, Casey Becker is, is so iconic though. She's only in so many minutes of the film. That's why Jada Pickett Smith's death is so fucking fondly remembered that sequel. I mean, if you thought you couldn't live up to the first movie and you did like, look at that. I mean, three is eh, but whatever. It's still kind of high pace. He's got a big fucking SUV sequence. Okay. It's not the best in the franchise, but still with this, the focus is kind of all over the place. So when you do finally go from, yes, we get to spend time with the lovely Anna Paquin and Kristen Bell. I mean, sign me up for that fucking party. I love those two gals and look both blonde, just looking really blonde in these roles. I'm okay, I'm okay with it. It's brief, but what a great fucking like cameo for both of them. Yeah. No, and that's the thing is is this opening scene, if you look at it from the perspective as as these are cameo characters, you're not yeah, you are not spending any significant amount of time with any of them. And I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that because it it, it does something, like I said, completely different and it kind of throws you off. That first that first like if you've never seen this film before and that first segment with Trudy and Sherry when they get the call and it's following beat for beat what we are familiar with, what we think an opening uh, a scene of Scream should be, right? They get the call. Um, you know, it's Ghostface. You got, you know, he's he's doing his little quips. You know, who who's this? Who am I talking to? You know, and Sherry hangs up on him. And then at the same time, Trudy is looking at her Facebook stalker who she casually mentioned. So he, he just, he's, she chats with me about random stuff, you know, uh, where am I from? What do I do? He wants to kill me. <laughs> and, and we find out, you know, it's uh, Channing Tatum, a picture of Channing Tatum that, that Sherry points out. They get the phone call again. Uh, Ghostface gets very threatening. You get the doorbell ring, um, you know, and then Sherry answers the door. Trudy gets the text that, the killer is not outside, but he's right next to them. He jumps out, stabs the shit out of her. As Sherry turns to run out the door. A second ghost face appears and slits her throat, which is probably the best effect in the film, honestly. And I mean, it's it's quick, it's fast paced, but it is what we expect from an, a Scream film opening. It's following the beats just to a, a much shorter extent. But then we find out as it cuts and we see Stab 6 fly on the screen, that it was the opening of Stab 6. And who's watching it but our, our two very lovely uh, Aryan friends, <laughs> these two like platinum blonde faux <laughs> lines. Just like, it's so aggressive because I, I keep forgetting that Anna Paquin was blonde for a period of time because of the goddamn... Um, True Blood. True Blood. Mm-hmm. But like, I'm so used to her being like, like brunette and like i think of like rogue from the x-men and then all of a sudden you see the two of them next to each other they look like goddamn clones of each other but they're both so likable in this very brief cameo and it's such a a fast moment but they both i would say are the strongest of the three groups of girls that we meet 
Oh yeah, and you give they give Adam Paquin a lot of personality, and goddamn, like I said, it is. I love the fact that she did this film and 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 did this small little cameo where she basically gets killed off. And because again, I had to point out, people might not know this. She won a fucking Oscar. This is an Oscar-winning actress that they get to kill off and scream for. She won an Oscar. She's the youngest actress ever to win an Oscar. She won it for the piano back in the early '90s. I mean, it's so it's so cool that she agreed to do this. But yeah, I love her. Just the brief moment that you spend with her, you're like, you know what? I know people like this. If you have film friends in your circle of friends, you know people like this because she's she is like not having any of the scream or any of the stab bullshit. She even says this is the stupidest fucking thing I've ever seen. It's the death of horror right in front of her eyes. Uh, it, it, it goes by so quickly. But it really is, it's like one of the standout moments I remember from this film. I remember seeing this. I really, really liked Anna Paquin at the time. Uh, I mean, I still do. I fucking love her. But yeah, I mean, that moment stuck with me. I will say when it, though, it it transitions to the next group of of girls, which is seated in reality now. Like we are in the real Scream universe. Um, You do meet these two other girls. You meet Marnie. But let's not let's not gloss past what fucking Kristen Bell does to Anna Paquin, which is the shock, right? Oh, the actual stab moment. Yeah, because Kristen Bell, you know, she says she says, um, you know, I like the stab movies. There's just something so scary about a man with a knife who just snaps. <laughs> and Rachel's like, oh yeah, but it's also predictable. We've seen it a thousand times before. You see everything coming, and then. Kristen Bell fucking stabs Anna Paquin in the stomach, not once, but twice, and tells her, you talk too much. Now watch the movie and shut the fuck up. And it transitions. It's it's the opening of Stab 7. So we have been tricked as the audience twice now because we're basically watching the, the opening of Stab 7, which starts with Stab 6. It's a movie within a movie thing. But yes, then we transition into Marnie and Jenny, which is the real quote unquote opening scene. This scene doesn't do it for me, man. I'm going to I'm going to say it. These two don't do it for me. It's the weakest. Um, and I love, you know, you got Amy Teagarden and Brittany Robertson. I, I love them both. Capable actresses. I I will agree with you on a perspective. I will agree with you on the idea that these two I needed a little bit more from. Have you ever seen the original? The, I have. Um, I have. Cut? Yeah. What do you think of that one? I would have preferred that. I feel like Marnie gets kind of shortchanged in this version. I mean, she's not in it very long at all. And, you know, she is she is like she's sort of like the Anna Paquin character. Right. She is like, these are stupid. I don't get it. Nothing makes sense. And and Jenny is, you know, I can't believe you've never seen these stab movies that we live in Woodsboro. And Marnie's like, well, I don't I don't know. That has that doesn't have anything to do with it. And then it's like it's quick she gets she hears something upstairs she goes upstairs jenny goes upstairs she calls marnie on the phone pretending to be Ghostface. she hears marnie get killed she goes downstairs uh gets a call from Ghostface, who you know taunts her about she's she's in a movie now marnie's part got cut way back but she's the blonde with the big tits who gets an elaborate death scene and then marnie's body gets thrown through the through the fucking glass window she gets chased down some stairs, stabbed in the back. Uh, it's quick. It's quick. I mean, their whole segment probably is less than, what do you want to say? Less than like four minutes. It's not long. Yeah, it is so fast. And I really think that, you know, they're, they're, they're focusing on who is Jenny, who is, yeah, the slate, I'm assuming the older sister here um, or friend or whatever it may be. Um, 
if it, 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 she's just not the strongest of the two. I think Marnie is a bit stronger in my opinion. And so when seeing the initial cut of this and then watching what they went with, it just feels, it feels very formulaic, which again, great concept was showing the other two flashbacks, but because it, it doesn't land on something that feels like it really has that much importance. They're just two very disposable individuals who once it's realized they're victims, it's not like they have some like, storyline that runs throughout they're just very disposable i'll say in like the great scheme of like slasher victims in this genre i feel like they're some of the most disposable kills in the overall franchise period the opening is the one thing that has me like womp womp about the film I can see where you say that. It's because they aren't given a lot of time. But again, they had to. They 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 tried to do something a little bit different with these, you know, with these openings of stab and stab six, stab seven, and so they just couldn't didn't have the time to give to these two characters who are the real the real victims. And they're mentioned like briefly by the other characters in the film, but it's nothing like Casey Becker. Like once they're dead, their presence is pretty much not felt. Whereas Casey Becker's her death was the the catalyst for for everything and like her presence is still kind of felt throughout the film because people talk about her. These two, yes, once they're dead, they're dead. But I think the whole thing with this opening scene that we need to really focus on is the fact that it's setting up sort of the statement that this film is making, you know, scream is very notorious for, for being a like tongue in cheek. Uh, I don't want to say parody, but you know, of the slasher genre, it's kind of a, Wink, wink at the slasher conventions of a typical 80s slasher film. This film is doing the same thing, but in terms of remakes and reboots, uh, because that is what is discussed heavily during these opening scenes with the torture porn craze. We're like, th- this film was making a, st- a very strong statement on the state of horror at the time, which was the torture porn stuff, because Trudy mentions. Saw four is horrible. It's just it's just blood and guts. There's no characterization. And then you get uh, Rachel Anna Paquin's character complaining about the state of horror, just being like stupid. All it is is about blood and guts, or or, or it's about remakes. And then you get Marnie, who is basically saying the same thing, who who's chanting the same thing about horror, and and all it is is is, is blood and guts. And then you get into as we get introduced to the other characters of the film, the whole idea of remakes and reboots. So it was trying to kind of make a statement on the state of horror at the time. Well, I think the thing about this film that I do find the most charming overall is out of all the films in the franchise, I think every, every film in the Scream franchise is trying to live up to or honor the you know the original film like i mean it made such an impact and a lot of these movies are just absolutely enjoyable you know for fans but that first film left such an impact and i think it's always something that they're striving to be as good as that movie and it's really hard to do that because it was such a landmark film this film out of all the films in the franchise to me feels the most like scream the original scream in tone in the time it spends with its characters, in the likability of many of its characters, in the fact that so many of the characters within this are allowed to have very fun, unique, quirky personalities. It is a quirky film in general, but uh, it has some great moments for Nev Campbell. I honestly forgot how focused on she is in this film because, you know, as we transition out of this moment, 
we go into seeing Sydney, like pretty much right away. You get this great shot of Woodsboro. You're right back in it. It feels like Woodsboro. She gets out of a fucking car looking sexy in that little red dress, a tight little dress. I mean, she looks great. And um, the, the Sydney in this film is weary. She's tired. She is over it. I love how hardened Sydney is in this film because it's not like she's scared anymore, but she's just, she's fucking over it, man. She's like, God damn it. Again, again. <laughs> and I, I, I really love Nev Campbell's portrayal of this character all throughout this film. Yes. I feel like this is the one film where Nev Campbell is. Yeah, you're right. She's over it. And there's several moments in the film that, that, that illustrate that when she actually initiates like, trying to kick the shit out of ghost face. Like she's going into houses. She, she is, yeah, she is not the scared cowering, you know, not that she ever was, but like, this is a Sydney Prescott that is like rushing into houses when, when, when neighbor girls are being brutally murdered by ghost face, she's rushing right in there. Uh, she's, she's kicking ghost face in the face down the stairs. She's jumping on and pushing. I mean, she's fighting back. Yeah. Uh, I forgot. Um, yeah, I forgot how much Neff Campbell was given to do in this film. And it's like she's refreshing in it. She's she's great in this film. That it actually gives her something to do. Yeah, and we're introduced to her. They they throw her right into the mix right away. As she's we find out she wrote a book called Out of the Darkness, and she's doing a book tour at a at a local book tour or at a local bookstore there in Woodsboro. And she has a very what do you want to say? aggressive i don't even know the right word for her publicist rebecca i thought you were gonna talk about her bangs her aggressive bangs she's got some sh- sh- shag bangs in this she looks good though but i'm talking about her her publicist rebecca <laughs> I, I listen i fucking love allison brie um, oh she's great. i think this i mean I, I love characters like this like she's detestable but you've got to have a few characters thrown in the mix you just can't fucking stand but goddamn, she's so good in this role and she doesn't have a lot but her scenes are fucking good. They're memorable. I feel like, yeah, she she is supposed to be sort of like the Gale Weathers of the original film transported to this film. I see the definitely parallels between Rebecca and Gale Weathers of Scream 1 and Scream 2. And that's what this film really does well, I think, is and I will 100% agree with your statement that this film feels the most like the first screen of any of the films in the franchise. And it's because they, they, they Wes Craven carefully makes these parallels between the first film and this film and weaves them in almost seamlessly. So not only do you have characters like Allison Brie, who very much is like Gail Weathers, you get Kirby, who is the female version of Randy. Um, you get a couple of uh, variations of Randy with uh, Charlie and Robbie. You, you get the kind of the, the wackiness, um, the, 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 the wackiness of a stew like character with Robbie and Charlie. And then you get the brooding boyfriend in Trevor, which parallels Billy Loomis. Right. So all these there's all these parallels between the, the first film that this film kind of weaves in really well. And, and another thing that this film does, I think, pretty effectively is keep it keeps it pretty constrained to like setting wise. The film is constrained quite a bit. Most of the film takes place in like Jill's house. There's some school scenes 
there is the uh, elaborate stabathon party that takes place, but that's that's a small little thing. It takes there's some police uh, police station scenes. So if you look at like the sets of this film compared with the first film, it's all very contained. The first scream was very contained. Scream two took us to lar- a large college, movie theaters, things like that. Scream three, Hollywood. So this film, I think, also parallels the first film in its like setting constraint, the set piece constraint. Oh, absolutely. And and you know we're gonna. I'm gonna make it clear right now. I had one area of critique. It was the opening. It's not that big of a fucking deal. I still like it. I still like it. From here forward, I really don't have a lot of bad things to say about this movie. So listeners, if you're going to be big sticklers on fucking hating on this movie, you may want to tune out or at least respect my opinion. Because another thing this movie does that I I find, honestly, balances very well over from beginning to end. There's a lot of characters in this. Nobody really feels truly underutilized. Everybody has a a purpose or feels like they're being, you know, incorporated in the story in a way that feels authentic to them. That who that's that's interesting that you say that because I slightly disagree with you. Um I feel like there's a few characters that I would personally I would have cut from the film so that we could get a little bit more of Trevor, so we could get a little bit more of Olivia, because I do feel like those two characters are under underutilized, specifically Trevor. Um, and there are times that we spend with other characters that I could give a fuck less about, and I'm talking about Haas and Perkins. Cut. I would cut those fucking characters from the film completely and give me some more moments of Trevor interacting with Jill. Give me some more moments of the group interacting together because you don't really see that a lot in this film. Valid, but you know what comes with all of those fucking characters overall, which I guess I'm just saying more like the balance. I feel like, you know, Gail's got a ton of shit to do. The focal characters, like even Dewey, his story isn't as meaty as some of the other movies, but he's now the sheriff. Like he has his own responsibilities and things that are going on. He has some fun action moments. I do hear what you're saying is it is a big fucking cast. Um, but with that, all those fucking people comes a, honestly, at times surprisingly high body count. Like that's another thing about this movie is a lot of fucking people die. <laughs> oh, a lot of people die. A lot of people die. Um, so Sydney is there with her publicist. She's going to speak at a bookstore. We do find out because we get a scene of Dewey's alarm going off. Uh, we do find out he's in bed with Gail. Uh, they, they've been married. Gail Weathers gave up her reporter journalist career so that she could be a wife to Sheriff Dewey Riley back in Woodsboro. You know, as he's going out to start his day, we are introduced to Kirby played by the lovely Hayden Pantier who speeds by in her SUV as she goes to pick up Jill played by Emma Roberts, who we all fucking love. If you don't love Emma Roberts, shut this fucking thing off now because I don't have any use for you. I mean, she is, she's amazing in this film and I, that's, she is the reason why I feel like I love this film as much as I do. And we will get there. We will get there, but don't come for Emma Roberts because I do remember Roger, when this film first came out, I remember people commenting, Oh my God, Emma Roberts was terrible. She was awful. And I'm like, how like (laughs) she is exactly how someone who is doing what they're doing for the reason they're doing it. I picture they would act, 
but she picks up Jill. And we get Olivia. So we have the, we have a gang now. And we find out just randomly through conversation that Jill is actually Sydney's cousin. Uh, and that Jill has a boyfriend named Trevor who she recently broke up with. And he's been calling her and calling her friends, trying to get in touch with her. And, you know, all this conversation is going on when all of a sudden Jill gets a call from Jenny Randall's phone, Amy T. Garden's character, who's killed in the opening scene. Um, and of course, Ghostface is asking, what's your favorite scary movie? And, and they hang up. And, and then Olivia mentions that she got a call, that same call earlier that morning from Carney. Uh, she calls her Marnie the Carney. <laughs> we got the call from Marnie the Carney. <laughs> I need to know more about that. I know. <laughs> I so said weird. that. I have that note. I'm like, why is she called Marnie the Carney? And also, <laughs> Olivia mentions that she hates Jenny Randall. She's like, I hate Jenny Randall. I'm like, I needed to see. This is what I needed to see. I needed to see, like, why is Marnie? I thought Marnie was cute. Why is she called Marnie the Carney? I need to know that. I need to know more about Olivia. I will say if there's one character that does not get enough time, it is Olivia. And it's and she's first of all, she's stunning. I mean, she's stunning. beautiful. Mariel Jaff. Yeah, she is, she's gorgeous. And she has charisma. She, it's not like it's a character that you want to be underutilized. Um, one thing up to this point in the dialogue that I really have to like tip my hat to is how many great like little one-liners and zingers already are coming out in the dialogue amongst these characters. I mean, they all have so much personality. Nobody in this film is boring. Hayden Panettiere is, I mean, there is a reason that Kirby is celebrated amongst horror fans. I think even fans, uh, casual fans of the genre have a reason for liking her. Um, and she's just absolutely phenomenal in this. And the dialogue that she's spewing is phenomenal. I, to me, again, I say, I mentioned Jill. But Kirby to me is is the standout character in this film. I love everything about Hayden Panier's uh, performance in this. Her her husky voice, her facial expressions, her, her some of her hand movements at, at certain times. She is just she she becomes a, this character that you would not expect if you watch like Heroes when she played the cheerleader and she yeah she was a super but like completely different character and yes i get why fans demanded that she come back although you know if we ever cover scream six we'll have to discuss how i feel like she was way underutilized in that film but i'm glad she came back for it but yeah we get a lot of good stuff with these characters they all have really good charisma together i buy them like i buy these three girls as friends like it feels natural but there's this moment where you know uh, olivia does mention to Jill that uh, she should be careful because Sydney is the angel of death and that everyone that she comes encounter with usually dies, but somehow she manages to survive. She says, you know what? The stab franchise is the wrong franchise for her. She should be her final destination. So many great references to other films and deep cut references, especially again with Kirby consistently throughout the whole film. There is a respect and love for the horror genre. And I really think that's one of the truly charming aspects about this movie is, I mean, it's, it is crafted for horror fans. Uh, and there are just so many like wonderful Easter eggs, little things that are planted here and there through everything that is said. Um, and I, I really think that in the sense of like camaraderie and like likability amongst cast members in general, I, I, I feel like the cast here in Scream 4, one reason I am a little bummed that they didn't 
proceed. You know how you talked earlier about it not having the kind of fame that it needed to have to maintain this vision. So then they rebooted it, you know, multiple years later. These are characters I would have liked to have continued following. At least, like you said, we got the chance to come back and scream six and see Kirby. That was a nice revisit. But I would not have minded following the story arcs of some of these characters for a while. Well, I think it's been said that, you know, if the film was successful, like the original idea for a Scream 5 would have been following Jill to college where nobody knows that she was like the real killer except like somebody that starts to like call her and and tell her that they know that she was really involved with it. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if how I would have felt about that direction, but I, I, I I think that this film, you know, this film, uh, it was supposed to set up a new trilogy and, you know, with, with, with a new focal character, which seemed to be the Jill character, Uh, the box office sort of prevented that, but also like, I guess the decisions that were made to like tack on that hospital ending and stuff that we'll talk about as the film, as we get to the end of the film. Right. Um, but yeah, so these are our three core girls, but we also cut now to a, a, a new character we're introduced to deputy Judy Hicks played by Marley Shelton. Uh, another, uh, another favorite who came back for scream five, although talk about <laughs> kind of a wasted return. Uh, I would say Judy Hicks and Scream 5 would would fit under that billing. But Deputy Hicks is an interesting character. And Marley Shelton, you know, gives her a lot of quirkiness. The interesting thing about her character is that she really is not a major character, but she's a major presence. Like She's not in a ton of the movie. Overall, Dewey's not in a ton of the movie. But they are key elements to keep the story going because the police presence is something that is consistent throughout the whole film. Um, And I I really fucking love her in this film. Um, She is at times often treated like a red herring simply because she's so uncomfortable. Um, There's that one moment later coming on with her in the staircase that like, we'll get to it. But like, she's so quirky. She's so weird. But this is a kind of... I mean, this is a series at this point that has developed characters like this before. I mean, Randy, that's why he was so endearing, uh, because he was just larger than life. Again, yeah, he was quirky. And she brings that kind of energy to this film. I I really love her in this role. I love all the fucking shit about the lemon squares. I love the strange flirtation she has with Dewey, who doesn't really know how to fucking handle it. I don't know, man. I love it. I I think that she's a great addition to the series. I'm happy she got more than one film under her belt. Yeah, well, she's taken down this, the the ghost face masks as Dewey approaches, and yeah, they have this very. Exp- I, I I don't know. It's like a, it's definitely innuendo, right? She's talking about her lemon squares, and she bakes some lemon squares, and and he's like, "Oh no, I I I, I can't." And she's like, "You're not cheating on your wife if you eat my lemon square." I mean, it's very obvious that she has a thing for for Dewey. But this whole thing is interrupted when he gets a radio call saying that he needs to get to the Randall house right away because it's real bad. Now, have you also seen the um, the cut footage of them at the Randall house with Marnie hanging from the ceiling? Yes, fan? why would you not include that in the film? I don't fucking know. That was brilliant. Like you get you get to see Marnie hanging from the ceiling fan with what's your scary favorite scary movie written in blood on the wall and they cut that from the film. Why? Why? Well, you know, recently, very very recently, and this is why this is great timing to cover this, 
Um, it, it was announced that like the original master cut of, of Scream 4 was discovered. And they're talking about the idea of, of doing like a remastering and like, you know, re-releasing it here soon. Um, and they're talking about, you know, releasing it with extra footage, extra scenes that have been found. Um, but also the idea of potentially like removing that strange Vaseline filter. You know, the one that looks like someone just smeared baking grease all over the lens and everyone's fucking glowing like angels. I was going to, I was waiting for you to mention that because I know you're a stickler on cinematography. So I was waiting for you to mention the Vaseline filter. Trust me. I have that note because there are some shots in this film that are truly, truly awful. Like we're talking like amateur high school film project level awful. Like you have halos glow. I mean, it's, it's bad. Like there's a scene when Gail first walks into the bookstore when she sees Sydney and uh, it's a terrible shot. And I cannot believe that a film with a $30 million budget looks as bad as this film does. Now on the flip side, I have heard many times that it's intentional. Um, that that whole Vaseline filter thing and the the glowing and the the halo lights over people it was intentional because Wes Craven was obviously making a statement about the remake and and torture porn craze of the early two thousands mid two thousands. Which, if you watch those films, they have kind of that same hazy filter to them. I get it and I respect it, and I I may not enjoy necessarily looking at it because the the footage itself is actually quite great i mean the film is shot very capably it's just this fucking schmear that's put all over it that it's so distracting at times yeah i can, I can get past it because i enjoy so much else about the film in general yeah oh yeah it doesn't bother me as much as it bothers some people i i because i get immersed in the characters in this film where i'm not even like really paying attention but there are some shots in this film where it's yeah. like whew, wow but now we get uh, Gail watching an interview with Sydney on her computer when she we find out that Gail's trying to write fiction now and she is has writer's block. She doesn't know what to write about. We then move to Woodsboro High where we are introduced to the two film geeks, Robbie, played by Eric Knudsen, and then Charlie, who is fucking Rory Culkin. Come on. You got to love Rory Culkin. He looks exactly like I love his voice. I, that deep, raspy voice. And he looks exactly like Macaulay Culkin in this. Like it's it's uncanny. But you know, uh, Robbie is Robbie shtick in this film. And I don't know. I first couple times I watched this movie, I thought Robbie was kind of a annoying, like throwaway character. But these up these viewings that I did for this particular podcast, it grew on me a little bit. Um, I I I don't know. Um, his shtick throughout the film is that he is recording his daily life. He wears this camera on his head and he's documenting everything that happens on his, and during his day. And he's, uh, uploading it to the, uh, like a web blog and it's called, uh, what is it called hall pass with, with Robbie. And he films the girls coming into school. And of course he's like, what's your favorite scary movie? Blah, blah, blah. I mean, again, we're getting we're getting red herrings galore in this film. What this film gives us is a lot of red herrings, including Trevor, who is Jill's boyfriend, who is stunning. Nico Tortatella. He, he, you know, he's an interesting character because obviously they're trying to parallel him with to Billy Loomis, right? And I feel like the one thing that I would have liked this film to do a little bit more is 
give us more of of him. Um, there's not a lot of characterization he's given, uh, except to be like, oh, uh, this brooding, creepy boyfriend who's upset that Jill dumped him. And he has a few scenes where he like pops up in her bedroom and stuff. But there's really no moments like it's like serious moments between him and him and Jill where where they get to interact and we get to, you know, get to know him as a character. I feel like that is that's sort of what's lacking. And I know the expectation that the filmmakers probably had was that what is that they were painting him as a red herring and everyone was going to think he was the killer. I get that. But for being such like a, I don't know, a seemingly important character, we don't get much from him at all. I think the, the issue with the character is like, you know, Billy Loomis was creepy but he was still like sexy and had like a likability factor that you like for a while, like in major parts of the, of the original film, you wanted him to not be the killer because he was, I don't know, he was just likable. This guy is, is, is not, you know, this guy is, he's just all of these negative traits and you know, like, because it's so heavy handed that he's just like such a douchebag, you know, he's not going to be the killer because it's just too obvious. You know, he's cheated on Jill. He's, so like cocky he's very like self-centric like he doesn't really have any positive traits to him so i think because it's just such like a negative portrayal of the character he feels very disposable yeah and that's what i'm saying i would have liked to because everything you see of this guy in this film this character is negative it's negative 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 like he's just yeah he's cheated on her he's just he's just kind of a, a an asshole and i would have liked to have some moments where is this guy really like this or what's going on? Because even like in scenes where he's like in the background, he's like brooding and looks angry and suspicious. Like when he's in the, the scene later on in the film class, when, when Sydney and Gail are there, he's just sitting there with like scowl on his face the whole time. I would have liked to have seen something a little bit, a little bit more depth to this particular character, because I know that he was supposed to be the Billy Loomis parallel, but he like, pales in comparison uh, it's lacking yeah it's definitely lacking he's not bad it's just no no he here is a capable act he's a capable actor give him the right give him some stuff to actually do uh but and then there's this moment where he i mean it's very brief it, it mirrors the whole hallway scene with sydney and billy in the first one where uh he confronts her and she's like you know what you know you cheated on me and i don't have time for this anymore she kind of shuts him down and Robbie has of course recorded it and they have a little confrontation where Robbie asks him what his favorite scary movie is. And he's like, I'll show you kind of corny, but um, that's our introduction. So now we've been introduced to most of the prominent characters in the film, with the exception of these two police officers that we'll get to that. I could give a fuck less about. Uh, Oh, but Troy, Adam Brody is so sexy to look at. I mean, at least he's fucking hot as fuck. So at least we have that. But yes, very disposable police officers. He is. And he's actually in, it's kind of, I was thinking about this when I saw him. He's, he's stunning. I would eat the things I would do to him. But yeah, he is actually in Ready or Not, which was directed by Radio Silence, who then got to direct Scream 5 and 6, right? So he has that connection too. But we'll get to those characters because I think they, I would have, I personally would have cut those two characters out of the film completely. That's just me. Um, so Sydney's given her book talk. Gail shows up. This is when we get the horrible shot of Gail. Seriously, guys, Google this image of Gail walking into the 
bookstore and just see how terrible this this image is with the with the with the Vaseline filter or whatever. It, it looks horrible. Um, but but Dewey shows up with Deputy Hicks and immediately is like everyone needs to stay because a phone that was used as a crime scene was traced to this location. And it's a shame because this is like the first introduction that Dewey has with Sydney. And I haven't seen each other since presumably Scream 3. And this is like right away. This is happening again. So he's calling the phone and it rings from Sydney's rental car. And when they open the trunk, they see there's a bloody knife and some posters of promotional posters of her book. One thing I w- think we need to acknowledge in a uh, little, just a t- little tidbit, little fact um, Sydney's book out of darkness is actually the name of another book by a fellow filmmaker. There is a book called out of darkness written by one Newman. And I just wanted to acknowledge that. And I don't know if you're familiar with that title, Troy, but it's a small world that out of darkness. <laughs> Have you read it? Oh, but I just think it's so ironic. I'm sorry. I think it's so ironic. That is <laughs> the same the same title as uh, not as a as a novel as a book written by um, filmmaker Hayden Newman. I didn't know if you knew that. <laughs> well, I do. Hayden Newman is a, a huge fan of the Scream franchise. Their film Reunion from Hell, I think, is a, is an homage to Scream, isn't it? You you read for it, weren't you? Casted in it for a while. What? I was. I was. You know what? I was. I was. And it's a Scream homage, so obviously Hayden loves the Scream franchise and has a, a huge affection for Sidney Prescott. I wonder if this film influenced that the title of their own book. You know what? Um, I can only suspect. Oh, I would say so. But anyway, so the book's in the trunk, <laughs> and it's covered in blood, and there's a knife, and everybody is obviously distraught, except for Rebecca, who sees it as a great marketing ploy. And I really do think that Rebecca's story arc here with her being so excited about these murders happening because she's so convinced it's just going to make them so much fucking money. I love that storyline for her. Well, it, again, remember Gail Weathers uh, comment in the first um, in, in Scream 1 where she tells Candy, do you know what this will do for my book sales? It's ex- I mean, Rebecca has the exact same reaction. She's like, oh, it's just going to make us a lot of money. I mean, that's that's what she's laser focused on. So we get English class and all these kids happen to be in the exact same class together. It's ironic how that works out in all these films, right? All the characters have the exact same class, but they're in English class and they get a uh, text all simultaneously saying that Jenny and Marnie were killed. And then all of a sudden they look out the school window and all the reporters are there. We get this moment where Gail is trying to get into Dewey's office while he's interviewing Sydney, but Judy will not let her in. In fact, Judy threatens to have her arrested if it comes to it. Oh my God. I love, there's very few moments between Gail and, and Judy, but they're some of the fucking best. And if anybody in, in my mind shines in this film, though they, you know, they do disappear for a bit towards the end. I feel the Gail Weathers moments in this film are some of Gail Weathers being Gail Weathers at her fucking finest. She has so many fucking great lines. She's such a bitch to people <laughs> like Gail. Gail is fucking over shit. And she kind of takes charge for a bit in this film. And like, I feel like Courtney Cox is having a ball with Gail in this role. I really feel like she's having some of her most fun in this role. Um, I don't know. I think she almost kind of runs with, runs away with it at a few times here over the course of the movie. Nev is phenomenal in this. 
but Gale gets all the fun scenes here. Oh, Gale. Gale in this film is, is yes. I think this is the reason why horror fans fell in love with Gale Weathers is because of this Gale Weathers that we get in Scream for. She is, her, her one-liners are on point. She gets, she actually gets stuff to do. She's not like designated to the background. Um, you know, she gets probably the most uh, intense, one of the most intense scenes in the film uh, at the Stabathon coming up. But yeah, she is, she's on her game here and, you know, she's not backing down from, from Judy and, you know, she pretty much almost storms past Judy and the, uh, the Dewey's office. And she tells Dewey, why, you know, why are you trying to keep this from me? And he's like, you know what? I'm the sheriff now. You can't be involved. He basically tells her you cannot be involved anymore. And she's like, are you kidding me? You know, the saying, wrote the book on it. I wrote the book on this, but he, he is not having any of it on her way out of the office. She, she is sure to tell deputy Judy that her lemon squares taste like ass. And then he's like, no, they don't. They don't like he tries to comfort her. Um, one thing I, I thought actually felt really consistent and coherent with this film and actually transitions very nicely. The next one to scream five is the natural progression of Dewey and Gail's relationship. Like they touch on it a few times, but they talk about how the fact that like, you know, Gail's pretty much given up on her attempt to pursue a big newswoman career and instead like, you know, struggling with her, her craft, trying to write, not, not finding her inspiration. She's feeling very like insecure, which you don't get a lot of Gail. Normally she's so confident and cocky, but there's times here that she's, feeling kind of insignificant and you can tell it it upsets her and i feel like the the storyline here when you do look at their story arc into the next film the scream five it actually makes a lot of sense their relationship has always been very up and down um but i think it finds a really nice stride here and it feels very believable they're struggling with things the few scenes that you get of them together i think they're great together it's probably because they are a real you know couple that did separate these two so they have probably a lot of natural emotion it happened to but I, I just think their their placement in the story feels very authentic it feels very believable yeah and it's really the only film that they have done together the only scream film that they're in together where they where the two of them aren't aren't left to battle the killers at the end right and scream gail shows up to help you know save the day at the end of the first scream the end of scream two it's gail and, and sydney uh, against mrs loomis and and um what's whatever mickey right scream three they're all they're there together scream five they're there together this is the only one that they're not together to confront the killers it's all uh sydney and scream four gail's in the hospital which i find is is kind of a interesting maybe a little refreshing take on on things with these two but yeah they are they they seem to be at peace with each other to the point, like when earlier when Gail is watching Sydney's interview, she does smile when Gail, where when Sydney says that she doesn't blame Gail for anything that's happened. They, they seem to have found peace. After this moment, the three girls, Jill, uh, Olivia, and Kirby, show up to the station just because they got calls. Because Jill and Olivia got calls from Ghostface. Uh, this is when Jill and Sydney see each other for the first time. They hug. Kirby's, Kirby is worried she may be next because she didn't get a call. <laughs> Um, and Dewey's like, oh no, wait, well maybe <laughs> Sydney offers to leave town. She's like, I should just get out of here. This, I'm, my presence here is probably not helping. And she's told by deputy Higgs that she really can't leave town because her, 
because evidence was found in her car. So while she's not really a suspect, they don't think she's involved, she can't leave either. Coming out of the sequence, we have this moment where you have Rebecca kind of like eagerly confront Gail. And um, I thought that this was really smart to have a scene between the two of them, because like you mentioned before, they're very much like almost like counterparts. You know, you could, you could tell that Rebecca kind of represents very Gale-like qualities, like a young Gale. You know, she's really like, she in this case, she's really money hungry, but she's really driven. She'll do whatever it takes to to get her way. Um, and the way that Gale kind of just handles her and hand, like basically hands her ass to her and, and tells her that she's going to reconstruct her face. <laughs> and then she turns around, she's like, still got it. Like, oh, I loved having this little moment, but I think it made perfect sense to show the uh, similarities between the two of them because they don't have a ton of moments together. No, they don't. It's 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 funny. What Rebecca says to her, she's like, you were my 90s, but you gave it, you gave everything up for love. <laughs> I mean, she's very like condescending towards Gail. Uh, yeah, Gail's like, I'll rearrange your face. Yeah, it's, it's a it's a nice little converse, uh, confrontation that that mirrors some of the stuff that Sydney and, and Gail had earlier in, in the earlier films, the little confrontations they had, or even like Gail's confrontation with Debbie Salt when Debbie Salt approaches her in Scream 2. It, it's very, very similar to that. Yes, yes. We're also introduced to Sydney's aunt Kate. Yeah, no, Jill's house. Sid Sid is talking to Dewey. Um, Kirby and Jill are there. Kirby mentions how pretty she is in person, but she must have a lot. She must have lots of scars. And now we get Jill's mom, Kate, who says her mom was my sister. I have scars too, but nobody asks about my scars. This is Mary McDonald, who I want to put this out there accomplished actress this is a two-time academy award nominated actress uh she was in dances with wolves she was in passion fish she got oscar nominations for both i i, I see people trash her performance or or comment on her uh yeah i don't really know what's going on with this character do you have any ideas because she seems to be aloof and like not even in the same film as everybody else and i know she was cast she was brought in as the very last minute like i believe if you remember you know who originally was supposed to play this role right i don't know L- lauren graham from gilmore girl oh i know why didn't it happen she dropped out at the like what like the day filming started lauren graham announced on twitter that she was no longer involved in the film and it, it might've had something to do with like, I think, I think it was creative differences she had with Wes Craven. So she dropped out. So they got Mary McDonald to come in at the last minute, like literal last minute. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I know there are deleted scenes with more of her in it. And again, I feel like it's just an example of a character that just is underutilized not given enough time. Like again, cut out Haas and Perkins and give me more of Kate because Kate should be an important character because she is Maureen Prescott's sister. Um, and she is literally given nothing to do except walk around the movie. Like, like I said, aloof, like you don't, she doesn't even know where she's at. It's like watching Mitch McConnell do a press conference. It, I really don't think it's any reflection on the, the acting of the character. I think it's simply the fact that like they're given absolutely no um, real placement in the story, like other than just being kind of a prop or a side piece. Like you're right. It absolutely shouldn't have been explored. The fact that this is 
Maureen Prescott's sister. And like, she mentions the whole line of like, I have scars, like emotional scars. I'm, you know, I guess she's talking about, uh, like explore that. Like, why would you offer that piece of information on this character that seems kind of heavy and not expand upon it more? She's given so little to do. And it's something like you look at it and you feel like they're almost bringing in somebody who is, like you said, an accomplished actress who has a recognizability factor. Like, why would you just not try to expand upon their presence within this universe a bit more? They should be a vital part of the storyline. Yeah, no, I don't think it's, I don't, I don't think it's Mary McDonald's fault. I, I feel like maybe she just wasn't given a lot of direction and, and maybe Wes Craven just thought it was a throwaway character, which is very, very puzzling to me considering, like I said, Maureen Prescott is a heavy, 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 presence over the scream films i mean it was all about marine prescott and screamed one two and three and then to bring her sister in and just give her literally nothing to do and have her act so like odd out were they trying to make her like a red herring i i don't know i don't know i don't know it's just weird like you said it's never expanded upon i mean she 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 has nothing to do even like later in the film when she has her death scene it's it's kind of throwaway uh but it's 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 odd it's an odd character um some choices were made i don't know i don't know sid and dewey are having this deep conversation and he's asking or she asks him about gail and he tells her that gail's having a really hard time adjusting to small town life and then um she's like well i'm sure things will get better and he quotes a line from her book and then did you catch this like am i they have this awkward like smile exchange. It's almost like they are attracted to each other. Did you get that? I, I did notice that. Like, there's a moment of just eye contact with, between the two of them. But I think I think what they're trying to create there is a moment of just them both being like, "It's ain't our first rodeo." But it does read a little, you know. This time, it definitely in the second viewing, it definitely read to me like they want to fuck each other, and uh, because he immediately once he like notices that they're having this eye contact, he's like, "Oh, I gotta go." I'm like, "Are you trying to wait? What are you doing? Are you trying to tell us that Sid, Sydney, and do you want to fuck each other? Because it certainly looks that way." Well, at least they're respectful enough not to pursue their feelings because they respect Gail too much. He does leave, um, and in classic scream fashion trevor is showing up in jill's bedroom in a, in a manner very similar to billy and it does seem again it does seem a bit heavy-handed that every scene he does have does seem like a direct mirroring of something that happened with billy almost to the extent that it feels like he doesn't have his own character storyline he's just literally following everything that billy did in the first film like because like this whole thing like he, he's completely recreating the whole sneaking in the room and surprising jill and startling her moment it feels so scream they don't it almost doesn't feel natural you get what i'm saying i get what you're saying it's it's heavy i think you nailed it it's heavy-handed it's definitely them being like we have to harken back to billy being in Sydney's room at the beginning of scream so let's just have him let's put trevor in there so we can reference that scene and move on. And yeah, he's acting really strange. And she even tells him she doesn't trust him. And this is when Cindy comes in and sees him. And like he awkwardly like leaves and he's like, Oh, oh, it is you. You know, uh, welcome. You look smaller. And he like goes out the window. He tells her she, he looks she looks smaller in person. And then after this, we have that goddamn fucking moment with Judy, and she's fucking suspicious too. 
yeah, you get two huge red herring moments in a row. Not before Sydney does tell Jill that Jill reminds her of her. And, you know, uh, Jill's like, well, she just kind of smiles, you know, sheepishly. And yeah, and then Sydney's like, good night. And she goes out in the hallway. And yes, you get, you get fucking Deputy Hicks out in the stairwell, blackened out. You can't see her saying, you don't recognize me, do you? We went to high school together. And poor Sydney's like, yeah, no, I don't recognize you. I'm sorry. That was a long time ago. It almost feels like over the top, like how like uncomfortable and like just off they're making Judy feel. But Nev Campbell is so like grounded in this sequence that it does make it feel like come to, it comes down to earth. And it's actually like an interesting choice for Judy's character. So she sure doesn't look like the character that you'd anticipate to even be a red herring. She's so like cherubic with her big old blue eyes, but they make her seem like a, a pinch crazy. And they don't really ever dive into like the weird little quirk elements that this character has like you know over the two films you know she's quirky it's a really great aspect of who she is but like you don't really know exactly what makes judy tick she doesn't get a ton of exploration which is a a shame but yeah in this moment she definitely seems like a red herring because she's kind of weird and they do play that up nicely and I think that's one of the the things that this film really does well is gives gives us some some red herrings, you know, a, a plethora of red herrings to choose from. So Olivia gets home, and this is when we are introduced to Haas and Perkins, and they are uh, played by Anthony Anderson and Adam Brody. They're the two deputies that are stationed outside of Jill's house to to watch it. Um, on her way in, Olivia calls Jill, and her and Kirby are watching Shaun of the Dead. Good choice. And they invite her up, but she says she doesn't want to come up there because the angel of death is still there. And they, they kind of let her go. And, and when she gets back up into her room, Jill thinks it's funny to call her and prank her with the ghost face voice. Kirby at the same time gets a call from Trevor's phone. And Olivia asks about this, uh, the stabathon. This is when we first learned about the stabathon. And, Kirby is trying to converse with who she thinks is Trevor, but he is telling her this is not Trevor. And then he asks her, how's the movie you're watching? She's like, what? Shaun of the Dead. And he's like, she says, how did you know that? He tells her to open the closet door. Um, She does. He's not in there. And she calls him out. And then he says, I didn't say I was in your closet. And this is when we get this fucking brutal 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 death scene of olivia and i mean he he is in olivia's closet the whole time he busts out and i mean he stabs the living shit out of this poor girl it's probably one of the more brutal death scenes in the entire franchise i mean she gets stabbed through the hand she gets stabbed in the back thrown thrown against her dresser and then thrown on the bed and just stabbed mercilessly in the gut uh until he takes her and smashes her body through her bedroom window to display to uh, Kirby and uh, Jill who are watching in horror from across the street. I think this is such a, a, an expertly crafted sequence and it is a bummer that Olivia is not explored that much, but like the sequence is such a payoff because of the way it is executed. And there's so many scenes in this film that like, I remember the first time I saw it genuinely like surprised me and this whole sequence got a big reaction out of me. Um, it's, it's a really just well-crafted setup of her watching through the window as you have this whole moment going on between Jill and, and Kirby. 
um, building up with them on the phones and everything. And it's just, it's just really well done. And I, I also just need to give this whole script credit in the sense of, you know, when it comes down to the outcome, everything leading up to, to what the big reveal is, they do a fucking good job of distracting your attention away from certain things and making you think that the storyline you're following right now is going a certain direction. They do a really great fucking job of setting the viewer up to be surprised out of all the films in the series in this franchise i think this is in many ways the smartest film uh, it, com- it completely distracts your attention away from certain things and you're just so busy paying so much attention to the many red herrings around you that you're not looking at like what's going on right in front of you the whole time and I, I've got to give credit at this point because already like the wheels are in motion and you really think like right now certain characters are being targeted and are obviously the victims. You're not prepared for what's going to happen. No, no. And, you know, watching the film upon subsequent viewings, knowing like who the killer is or who the killers are, it's really interesting to catch little things, right? Um, because I don't know if you caught this or not. And I did. And I don't know if it was like, if it's supposed to be what I, what I, interpreted it as this time but if you go back and watch the scene as soon as olivia starts getting attacked jill has her phone in her hand and it looks like when the killings like when she knows the killing is going to start she's she presses something on her phone and the whole time she's watching uh, olivia be stabbed if you look she's holding her phone against the the window like she's recording did you catch that? I didn't, but that's so fucking genius when you find out the motivation behind everything. Yeah, go back and rewatch the scene and the the whole scene when Olivia is being stabbed and Kirby and Jill are watching from her window. Jill has her phone in her hand pressed against the window. God. Yeah, yeah, and I, I just I caught it this time. I'm go like, oh, fuck. Is she doing what I think she's doing? Is she recording this? Because that's yeah, I mean they they mention at the end of the film that everything's being recorded. Yeah, this this film is when it, when it comes down to it, this is a smart fucking slasher. You are not getting like paint by numbers uh, storyline and character development. Like this is a film that chooses to to make you think a little bit harder, and I think with some of the characters maybe feel a little bit more too. Um, I really care about the Gale in this film. I care about the Sydney, and you become invested in it. But it's a smart fucking script, and I really appreciate that about that aspect of this film. It is a smart, well-written script. Kevin Williamson at his at his best here. I think I'm glad they brought him back to write this script, even though I know the Weinstein's fuck them interfered a lot with the film and what he wanted to do and what his original script was. At least he was brought back because it, after Scream Three, this is definitely a return to to form. But no, there's this moment when like Sydney, she, when she realizes what's going on, cause she runs up into Jill's room and she sees what's going on. She just runs, she runs right into that fucking house. She takes a flower pot, bashes her way in and she goes right up into Olivia's room and we see like the aftermath. And let me tell you, Olivia's room is covered from floor to ceiling in blood and she is on the bed. Her guts are hanging out. Jill comes in. And says to Sydney, she said you were the angel of death. And this is when Ghostface attacks and slashes Jill's arm. 
Um, and this is like Sydney. This is Sydney. She like doesn't even hesitate. She kicks the shit out of go. She kicks him down the stairs. She like leaps at him. Do you notice? Like she jumps on him and they fall down the stairs and then she like kicks him in the face. She's not having any of this. The Sydney in this film has been to self-defense fucking classes. She has learned to protect herself. The Sydney here is not fumbling or bumbling. Not that she ever has been, but this, this is a Sydney who has been through enough life experience that she is not going to be running from anything. She's running into the fire. She is going into the fray and she is ready to fight. But I also love a few moments. Like when she finds the body, she has this moment where she grabs onto the door frame and she squats down and she like, is just like, I can't believe this is happening again. Like you have this moment where you can just see, just see the characters like wheels spinning. And so often with these films, like I think certain elements of it feel kind of like, I don't want to say formulaic, but there's a lot of times that I feel like these characters aren't given these really like kind of human moments to just process. And you see Sydney processing everything over the course of this movie. It's a really great character study for her character. Way better than anything we get from a Laurie Strode when they came back in like the Halloween 2018. Ugh. Give me Sydney Prescott and Scream 4 any day because this is a hardened individual with PTSD who's been through a lot of fucking shit. So she kicks Ghostface, and at the same time, Perkins comes in. But Ghostface has, as he always does, he's vanished into the night. Uh, we get this moment with Robbie and Charlie as they show up to the hospital. And Robbie's, of course, recording, and Gail approaches them and asks them, aren't you the two boys that run the movie club? They're like, yeah. And she tells Robbie to shut the fucking camera off because they want she wants to talk off the record. And what she offers is that they team up because she wants to she thinks that because these two run the movie club that they are going to know like all of the like the movie nerds and people that are like obsessed with film. And so she wants to get in on this because she she's thinking that the killer, whoever the killer is, has to be obsessed with film, particularly like the stab films, right? So she makes an offer that if they can work together, that she will make an appearance at the, at the cinema club as uh, Robbie or, or as Charlie corrects her. It's the cinema club. It's not the movie club. She'll come and make an appearance. And uh, <laughs> they're like, uh, what about Sydney? Like that would be a big deal. She's the star. Gail trying to align herself with two teenage boys so she can like find a way to get in just to like prove her point is such a Gail fucking Weathers move. I love it. And I love how like offended she is like when they're like, uh, can you get Sydney to come? And she's like, you can see that Gail is like, how dare you? <laughs> like, you can see how yeah. Gail, and she's like so defensive. It, it's my favorite Gail. She's like so on her game yet again in this moment. She even says, oh, I, yeah, I, I guess I'm the J.K. Rowling to her Harry Potter. So Sydney is good to go. She doesn't have any broken bones. She's in the hospital. She comes out of her hospital room. Rebecca approaches her with an offer from the publisher. She gets three more books and she has a blank space in her contract to write down her amount. And Sydney asks, have you even read my book? And Rebecca's response was, well, I was kind of going to wait for the movie. And Sydney's like, you know what? I won't be needing your services anymore. And there's this moment where Rebecca stops and she's like, listen, you're a victim. You need to accept it. I, I know that you think all these downtrodden little fucks that read your book need, you know, are, are going to need you to be whatever. But you, 
you could make a lot of money. The checks would be unlimited. I have you booked for the Today Show, for all this shit. And Sydney's like, you know what? You're fired. And Rebecca's like, fine. <laughs> and she goes to her parking lot. She's in the elevator. And she's like, you know what? Sydney's going to come around. The problem with Sydney, she never gets laid. She is wearing a great jacket. And she is ready to basically make her next business move because as soon as she gets a phone call, because you know it's fucking coming, she's still claiming that she is representing Sydney Prescott, even though she's just been fired. Uh, she's currently handling all her calls, which really is inevitably the doom for this character. But I mean, for being a you know a reasonably small supporting character, what a great sequence this builds up to. It's not that long but the time that they devote to this character's inevitable demise is so entertaining uh and the build-up the build-up like i mean these are the kind of moments i want out of these films and they really deliver a great sequence here that has multiple levels to it as well because you know you think she's dispatched obviously that's coming up but then there's more to it and what a great payoff oh yeah she um she gets the call and you know he Ghostface is like, you know what? You are the message. And she uh, tells him that she's in the hospital with Sydney, but then her car alarm goes off and Ghostface is like, it doesn't sound like you're in a hospital. It sounds like you're in a, a parking garage. But if you want to be in the hospital, I'll put you there in the morgue. And then she runs, gets in her car. Her car won't start. Ghostface hops on the hood. We see that he has ripped out some, some wiring from the car. And, you know, as she looks back up, he's gone. And she, pr she probably makes a really stupid decision that I would not have made if I were her. I, my ass would have stayed in that car uh, because she doesn't give it any time at all. Like literally like 20 seconds after Ghostface disappears, she gets out of the fucking car. I'm like, what are you doing? You dumb bitch. Like my ass would have stayed in that car till the morning. If I had to trust well, me. Also, there's a car driving by and she's like screaming at it. But I'm like, bitch, honk that. She doesn't horn. Like honk, honk it, like beat on that horn. Yeah. She doesn't make the best choices, but it pays off. <laughs> well, it pays off for Ghostface and for us, but not for her. Yeah. I, it's, I love that. She, she, yeah, she gets, she runs to the, to the door to get back into the hospital and she pulls the handle and the fucking handle comes off. <laughs> did do you think Ghostface did that or was just just like coincidence? Oh, I think he knew exactly what the fuck he was doing. And I love this moment where she turns around and he just runs right at the camera. Um one of my favorite stabs in, in recent memory, because you you see the whole shebang and you just have this great shot of him running up into her and just stabbing her in the gut. And then you get this really prolonged moment of of Ghostface pulling the knife out of her stomach and blood just starts kind of pouring from the wound and she just collapses. Um, it's not like the most violent killing, but it's it's shot and edited in a way that you 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 see the whole thing and it's really like painful. Her reaction to it when she's like, ah, ah, like you see her like gasp as the knife goes into her and like her reaction realizing that she's about to die. It's just really well played. Oh yeah, she stares. She looks at him in the face like she's staring. Oh, it's 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 really great. But then that's not even the 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 cream of the crop because what happens is down below, Dewey is holding a press conference for reporters and he's trying to answer questions about um about Ghostface or about the killings and and Gail's there. She you know bursts her way through the crowd and asks him how does he feel about the the killings mirroring the killings in the original you know Woodsboro murders. 
and he says, oh, we have everything under control. That's not, that's not, that's not happening. And all of a sudden fucking Rebecca's body is thrown from the parking garage floor and lands on the news van below. I mean, in front of everybody, it's a huge fucking spec- spectacle. Probably one of the grandest sequences in the Scream franchise in the sense of like, you know, we've talked about, you know, a lot of the moments in the, in the Scream films being pretty fairly restrained or, you know, restricted to smaller locations and so forth. And even in Hollywood, it was restricted to a mansion. Like a lot of times you don't have these big crowd sequences where, uh, you know, someone's killed in front of a crowd. It's pretty rare. And if it is, it's like the opening kill that you get in Scream 2. Like that's like the, the centerpiece of the film. This moment, like, I mean, like, the, everybody fucking sees it. The body, like, tumbles down from the higher, the highest floor of the parking garage and smashes into the, the news van. The sparks are firing off everywhere. The giant metal pole collapses on top of the truck. Like, it is a spectacle. That is the term for it. Um, and it really is one of, like, the grandest moments in the film. It's such a good sequence. Oh yeah, I remember they used it in the trailer when they were, you know, with, with the original trailer they came out. It was like the kills have to be much more brutal, and they they showed this. They showed her body landing on the the van. Um, but yeah, no, it's a great, great whole sequence. And even like Dewey gets up there to look at the body, and Gail's like, "Hey, everything's under control, huh?" And he's like, "Well, what am I supposed to say?" And then we cut to Cinema Club the next day, where Sydney and Gail are there. Gail's in a great fucking white and black suit looking fucking phenomenal. Oh, I know. She looks great. And Charlie, uh, Charlie and Robbie are running it. And basically there's this whole, we've seen this conversation before. This is almost like the whole, uh, film class scene in scream two when they're debating whether sequels are, you know, better than the original, blah, blah, blah. But basically the whole rundown is that Charlie mentions that this is a new decade. So there's new rules and the killer uh, should be filming his murders this time around because it's the one component he's missing. Um, and Sydney asks, who do you think the killer is? And he says, well, obviously it's somebody that's a stab fanatic and they're working on making their own shriekwell or screamake as he calls them. And when Kirby gets Sydney's attention and she shows she's after Sydney asks this question, she shows Sydney her phone and she's showing Trevor. So obviously alluding to the fact that Kirby thinks that Trevor is a likely uh, suspect, right? Yeah, they're definitely painting it that way. <laughs> Whenever they do show him, he looks like it. Oh, God, he's scowling the whole time. Charlie goes on to say the unexpected is a new cliche and that the killer's trying to remake the killings of the original uh, Woodsboro murders. Uh, and he's following the structure of the original killings. Like the opening kill was two kids home alone. The third act is going to take place at a party. And then they realize that that night they have the stabathon planned. It's quite convenient that this massive event is happening that evening, but it's such a great fucking event that I'm like all all about it nonetheless. Um, and they like immediately like Gail is like, where where is this happening? And they like refuse to tell her because they know that like you know they're probably going to try to shut it down because all things considered, this is if they're following the same formula, like this is where that shit's going to go down. Um, and so they keep t- trying to dodge 
you know, the, the, the question and lead into a QA session. And Gail's just like, yeah, go fuck yourself. <laughs> she's, she's so aggressive with these two teenage boys. Like, um, and so she and, and Sydney just leave, like they leave abruptly, but this event's going to happen. And it is one of the best set pieces of the film. I'll say that right now. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely one of the best set pieces in the film, but not before we get a nice moment between Jill and Sydney where Jill is very uh, compassionate towards Sydney. They're talking, uh, Jill is asking how she handles like everything. How do you handle the attention and the stares? Like I could, I could never get used to that. Jill says, Sydney just responds that, you know what? She doesn't even think about it being her anymore. She thinks about the people that she loves and that are close to her heart. And it makes her kind of forget what's go, you know, everything that's happened and what's going on around her. And they have just, they have this really sweet moment. Jill thanks her for saving her life. Um, and it's really the first moment that we get with, with Jill and Sydney having a, a real like heart to heart conversation. You absolutely needed this moment for the finale to pay off. And, and luckily, like they do start to develop, what does seem to be a bit of a bond starting from this point moving forward. Uh, it, it's very well played. They play very nicely off of each other. Um, one thing I don't want to skirt past is acknowledging the line very quickly. And this is how you know it's starting to proceed into the 2010s and, and beyond. Uh, I think the, the public mentality on things was starting to shift a bit. Um, but you do have the one line that the boys deliver about the only way you're going to survive a horror movie nowadays is if you're gay, um, which I think five years prior, if this film would have been made, that kind of line wouldn't have existed. So this was definitely starting to depict a bit of like the open-minded acceptance now of like the queer community more, I think was really starting to come about, you know, at this point, 2010 and beyond. Um, so it was nice just hearing kind of a, a reference that, you know, is acknowledging queer culture, but it's not a jab at it whatsoever. If anything, it's acknowledging at this point, like gays kind of get special treatment, you know, like, uh, which I, I dig that little line and they don't go, they don't beat it too much. They bring it up again a little bit later towards one of the death sequences. Um, but overall, I, I think it was a well-played little bit of dialogue. Yeah. And you're right. It does come back into play here in, in a little bit in the film. Stabathon's going on. Kirby's there. Uh, Trevor's there apparently, but then Gail is there as well. She has found out where it's at and she is on a mission. She even puts a ghost face mask on to disguise herself. She goes into the Stabathon and she hides cameras basically around the, the venue, which happens to be just an old deserted barn. Uh, Charlie and Robbie introduce this Stabathon 3. And they basically have this event every year where they just show all of the stat films in sequence. This looks like a fucking blast and a half. The, this fucking party. First of all, Gail walking around in that fucking like ghost mask, but like trying to be like, hey, what's up? Like, you know, like, she's like still trying to like blend in. And she just like, she's again on top of her game. She's really fucking entertaining in this film. But this event, people walking around dressed up like, you know, Gail and, and Dewey and like in costume and like, you know, just this movie is playing on this gigantic fucking projector screen. I think it's so cool that they went back to, you know, the stab film that we saw in Scream 2 and you get like a really big chunk of it. Like you see the whole extended bit with Heather Graham again, like you get to watch that again. And it feels strangely nostalgic because, you know, it's, it's part of the Scream lore 
this whole stab franchise is such a major aspect of it. And the fact that they've come back to it and, and included this back into the sequence, it plays very well. And I really appreciate how they managed to incorporate stab, the movie stab into some of the, like the scare or jump scare moments that are coming up too. moments where you have like Gail getting startled by what's happening on screen. They lean into that material and they play it very seamlessly into the sequence. It feels very, uh, very much like a hat tip to the, you know, the original trilogy. I really like this bit. Yeah, I am so glad that we got to see Stab again because that was such a a, a, a phenomenal uh, way to open up Scream 2 was with the theater and the crowds watching Stab. So seeing it again and then seeing Stab 7 played later on at, at Kirby's house is was it's it's a lot of fun. It's just fun. It's it's like you said, yeah, it's it's just a really, really smart decision to to have this playing, and it plays well into what Gail's doing because what she ends up doing is she goes to her car, and she's watching her uh, camera on her computer when she notices that someone starts covering the cameras up, and the last glimpse we get, we see it's someone in a ghost face mask. So she calls Dewey and tells him that she's at a stab. She's at the stabathon. She thinks the killer's there. He's going to strike. And he's like, how do you know that? And she's like, well, come on. The killer's trying to recreate, you know, the, the murders and, and the, from the first stab film. And this is a stabathon. How meta can you get? <laughs> he's like, how, what? She's like, I don't know. I heard him say it, but, uh, but she goes back in because he's like, oh, whatever. I don't know. And, and she's like, fine, I'll go in and, and fix my cameras myself. So she goes in back into the barn. And yeah, this whole Heather Graham scene's playing as Gail sneaks back in to fix her cameras. And as Dewey shows up, he is able to see Gail on the computer in her car fixing the cameras. And she actually finds a, a webcam that has been planted by somebody else. And as she's approaching it, we see through her computer what Dewey's seeing is that Ghostface is rushing up behind her and she turns around just in time. And we get this short little brawl between Gale and Ghostface where they're like throwing each other against hay bales and stuff. And they roll off the the side of the loft and land on the, the floor below. And Dewey comes in and starts like shooting. And all these kids are in there. This is, I mean, this place is packed. And... Right as Ghostface is ready to to kind of leave because Dewey's shooting at him, he does stab Gale in the in the shoulder. One thing I really appreciate about where they go with this film, you know, Gale's gotten injured before, but she's she's seriously injured here, and um, this film does kind of go against your expectations a bit. You really start to feel like the leads here are in a in a position in which they're really truly in danger. I think Scream 3 lost some of that because it, it leans so much into like the sticky elements of the of the franchise. And this film kind of brings it back to that more grounded in reality. Like, yes, there are these still these really big moments with Gail where she's having a lot of fun with the character. But like this fight sequence, like lest we forget that Gail Weathers has had some of the finest run chase fight sequences in horror movie history like courtney cox knows what the fuck she's doing and she's sure doing it well here in this sequence i mean she gets stabbed and then she fucking rolls log rolls off the fucking edge of that goddamn barn and falls into the hay below and it's just like goddamn poor fucking gail weathers getting beat up at 50 or however old she's respectfully i mean she's you know she's 
she's aging at this point and she's looking good fucking doing it um still looks like her face she looks great in this one <laughs> but she um she takes she takes an ass kicking in this movie and i appreciate that like i like that just because she's an older woman overall you know she's an aging woman they don't let that be like a crutch i feel like i feel in some movies they start to just give them less to do in this movie i feel like west craven really pushed both both nev campbell and courtney cox um, in, in multiple sequences. And here, this is Gail's ch- like sh- chance to shine. She has this big physical chase and attack sequence with the killer, and it's intense. And I really thought she was going to maybe die. First time I saw this film, I thought they were thinking about killing her off because it's so intense. I'm happy they don't, though. Oh, no. Yeah, I thought the same thing. And again, I go back to the trailer. Remember when the trailer was first released, they show... Uh, this whole scene and like the ghost face on top of her getting ready to stab her. And in the trailer, remember she says, go ahead and do it. If you have the guts, which is cut from the movie, but they all, the trailer did a really good job at like throwing people off because there's also the trailer also showed the scene of Gail pulling the ghost face mask off. And I remember everyone was online was like speculating. Oh my God, Gail's Gail's finally one of the killers or they're finally killed. So very pivotal scene here, but it also then puts Gail out of commission for the rest of the film, which is why Sydney has to, you know, face the the showdown with the killers by herself, basically. But Dewey shows up and comforts Gail and tells, and she tells him, I found a webcam, uh, the killer, this time he's making his movie. And now we get um, a throwaway scene to add to the body count with Hoss and Perkins uh, outside of uh, Jill's house. They're talking about how cops always die in films, well, except Bruce Willis. Uh, Haas mentions to to Perkins and then Haas decides he's going to go out and do his rounds and so he he's doing his rounds he notices the bedroom window in Jill's house is open so he radios to Perkins to doesn't answer him when he gets back Perkins is playing dead scares him Ghostface runs up behind Haas stabs him in the back and then stabs Perkins through the forehead that has to take some strength well I mean not only that but he gets stabbed in the forehead and he like lasts for far longer than any human could or should taking that kind of injury to the brain. Um, but it does make for a very bloody sequence in which he is just bleeding like uncontrollably from his forehead and like blindly swinging at the killer before just dropping to his knees and saying like, fuck Bruce Willis and drop into his face and dying, which is like it, the line is a little cringy, but it, it's an entertaining sequence. Like if you're going to give me a body count, okay. Like, I mean, is it over the top? Yes, it's very fucking over the top. Um, but it's intercut with a few little moments that I like. Like, I, I like that whole moment of Nev or Sydney with, with the wind chime where she, like, takes the wind chime down and she's, like, looking over and she's sensing something's off. And, like, it's a very Wes Craven moment. Her hair starts blowing in the wind. You hear the chimes, like, stringing together in the wind. Like, it's just very creepy. And those are those little Wes Craven details that I think are so important to to his work and important to you know his his entries in this franchise he just had this great eye for detail and in building suspense um i think even though yeah this moment is a little bit shaky he still adds his signature touch to it and still works for me yeah i just that that whole i uh fuck bruce willis line is just so uh it'd be much better if they cut that line and i know some fat some fan edits have actually cut the line out because it is stupid 
But yeah, so now Sydney hears the wind chimes again because yeah, during this whole thing, she does go out check the wind chimes. She hears them again, but she goes to the door and it's just Kate bringing in groceries. So Kate was out doing some late night grocery shopping when there's a murderer around. And so she goes, Kate goes to get her last bag of groceries out of the car. Sydney gets a call from Ghostface who taunts her and says, you're a survivor, Sydney, aren't you? What's good a survivor if everyone around you is dead? And he commands her to turn on the TV. So she does. And she sees the uh, broadcast about Gail being stabbed. And he's like, yeah, friends are good, but, you know, it's the family ties that cut deep. And she's like, what are you talking about? Please don't. And he's like, you can't save them. All you're going to do is watch. And she hangs up, runs up to Jill's room. Jill is gone, but she looks at Jill's laptop and realizes that Jill had messaged Kirby to come and get her because her mom was driving her nuts. So she runs down, gets Kate. They open the back door to run out and Ghostface's face. The shadow is there. So they go to the front door. And as they open the front door, Ghostface is there too. He got around that fucking house fast, right? And so they shut the door. They block the door. Kate kind of sinks down to the ground to brace the door with her back. And they get it shut. And as Sydney's telling Kate to get up so they can run out, Kate is stabbed in the back of the neck pretty violently through the uh, mail slot. It's a moment that feels like it really should be very impactful, but because like the only other time we have ever seen Kate was that brief moment earlier in the film when she was also, I believe, dropping off groceries. Um, <laughs> that's like all she does in this film. Um, and so it feels like, you know, you feel like you're supposed to feel all these things here um, because it seems like a very big dramatic moment as she dies in, in Sydney's arms and this is Sydney's aunt. And it just seems like it should be this big moment. But again, this character is so severely underutilized. Um, unfortunately in a, amongst a cast of characters that do for the most part, a lot of them have a lot of things to do. It's, it does stick out like a sore thumb that her character has this kind of big death moment. And it just feels very hollow because she just wasn't properly explored. Yeah, like even Sydney's reaction to it is kind of like low key. Like for it being her aunt, she's just like, oh, okay. You know, there's this weird moment where Kate, before she dies, she's like, tell Jill I'm sorry. Like, wh- about what? Like, we don't know anything. Like, there's no, like, what are you sorry about? What scars did you have? Like, this character, so, so, so underdeveloped. But as Sydney goes to leave the house, Hicks is right there again, red herring moment. She just happens to be there. Uh, Sydney shows her that Kate's dead. And when, when Hicks is looking at the body, Sydney takes this opportunity to take Kate's Kate's car to drive to, because we assume she's going to Jill's. So now we cut to basically the final stretch of the film, which all takes place at Kirby's house. So the group has moved the Stabathon to Kirby's house. So the, the regular group are there. They're kind of worried about what's going to happen to them because they had the stabathon and because Gail was stabbed at the stabathon. Robbie thinks it's going to like end his whole blog and everything. And while they're kind of chatting this up and Charlie's getting ready to put Scream 7 in, Trevor shows up and says that Jill texted him, which she adamantly denies. There's this great moment where, uh, right, right leading into that, where you have. Gail being taken into the hospital 
where she has that great line where she's like, go get that motherfucker. And like, you really don't see a lot of Gail at this point, but you do get a moment of her getting taken to the ICU. Like it is made pretty clear that Gail is not dying. Thank goodness at this point. Um, but the wheels are now kind of in motion that they're trying to figure out where, where shit is, where it's all culminating. So you do know you're hitting the final stretch. Once you get to Kirby's house, things do start to hit a really nice stride. And this is again, where it does start to feel very much like the first film. It's starting to fall into a very familiar territory. It's got that party vibe. You've got the focal characters all together, um, in this, in this house that has a very similar kind of feel to the house in the original movie they did a really good job of i think honoring that formula while doing something completely their own yeah and the characters kind of do this do very similar things as they did in the first scream where they split up or, or pair up together because there's this moment where uh kirby and charlie are watching uh stab seven on the couch and you can tell that they're they're kind of really digging each other they've they've been in they've been in each, into each other the entire movie like there's little quips back and forth little flirtatious quips they've had and charlie has even said oh she wants me she wants me and kirby has mentioned that she thinks charlie is is cute and whatnot so now it's culminating in this moment where they're watching the movie and robbie's outside recording for his audience that that charlie might get lucky tonight and of course what what transpires is that while Charlie is dead set on watching Scream 7, Kirby tells him it's a really good opportunity for him to make a move. And they kiss. And right at the moment they start to kiss, who shows up back into the room? Trevor. He is amused at the fact that Kirby and Charlie were about ready to make out. And you get this whole fun moment where Kirby's like, who invited you? Trevor, get out of my house. And he's like, I'm just going to go back upstairs. And Why is he just hanging out now? I'm, I'm so confused. Like, they've all made it very clear that none of them, them want him to be there. And he's just like this detested character by everybody. It's so strange. Well, I know. And if, I like the line Kirby when he shows up. He's like, oh, I didn't see Jill. And she's like, oh, well, it's a good thing that you're here to save her. And you can't even find her. But yeah, so you you get that sweet moment that between Charlie and Kirby, he does storm off when Trevor, when he realizes Trevor is not going to leave, he he storms off, and that's when Trevor realizes what was happening. But back outside, Robbie tries to go live again, and he's having a glitch with his camera, and we get this kind of cool shot where he lifts his camera up, and through his camera, we see Ghostface come out the front door of the house and just immediately stab Robbie right in the fucking chest, and then the gut throws him on the ground and is like getting ready to stab him. And Robbie's like, no, no, you can't do this. There's rules. There's rules. I'm gay. If that helps. And of course, Ghostface stabs him in the gut. So I know, I don't know. Do you think Robbie was just saying that because he's wanted to save his life? Or do you really think he's gay? Oh, I think he's definitely trying to save his life, but I even love, like, I don't know. I do think it still shows kind of an evolution in, in, queer infused humor because uh, it, it doesn't seem like a cutting or mean approach at all. Again, it's a, he's like, I'm gay. I'm gay. If it helps, like it just, it's, it's played really well. And I, I felt bad when this character died. This whole moment I think is really well played when he hits the, cause he hits his head on that fucking hanging basket, drops the camera, drunkenly puts it back on. It's on backwards. So he's filming the whole thing. And it just, it's, it's, I don't know, man. It's, it's a really well executed sequence. And you do feel bad for Robbie. I do feel bad for Robbie. He was, you know, likable guy. Yeah. And I feel the same way. I know that I've seen people or I've heard people say that they 
think he really was gay, but that doesn't make a lot of sense because throughout the whole movie, he's talking about wanting to get with Olivia. Um, yeah, I don't think he, I think he was very intentionally doing it because he thought it was going to save his life. Uh, it was like kind of like the humorous quip, you know, like, like we get with Perkins saying, fuck Bruce Willis. We get Robbie saying I'm gay. If it'll save my life, but he's, yeah, he's definitely not gay. But then we get, I mean, the movie kicks into to full gear here because Kirby realizes she's by herself. Now she hears something. She's kind of investigating. Jill comes downstairs saying that she found her phone in Kirby's room and Kirby's like, well, where's Trevor? He was supposed to be up there. And Jill's like, he's not up there. And they're like, well, maybe they're all outside. So they open the front door and Sydney is there to get Jill. And as she gets ready to pull Jill out, Robbie comes up behind and is just like covered in blood and says, run. And then Ghostface is there. Like it kicks in. Ghostface chases uh, uh, Jill and Sydney run upstairs Sydney does something very smart where she tells Jill to hide under the bed and then they go out onto the patio. So when Ghostface comes in, she's pretending that she's telling Jill, now go down and run as fast as you can and get help. But Jill's under the bed. There is this really kind of, again, reminiscent of Scream, the first Scream, this nice rooftop pursuit between Ghostface and Sydney where she climbs out on the roof and is being pursued by Ghostface. And she's able to call Dewey to tell him, I need help. The killer's here. And so Dewey in turn tells Hicks to call all units to, to Kirby's house. Much like the first film, Sydney is knocked off the roof and lands on the, the, the ground below. She runs back into the house, runs into Kirby. They go down into the basement. And this is this moment where Charlie is outside trying to get in and he, his hand is covered in blood and, and Kirby's like hesitant. And he's like, no, no, it's Robbie's blood. Please let me in. And she, doesn't let him in because Sydney says, don't let him in if you can't trust him. And it's kind of this heartbreaking moment because you can see that it's really, really upsetting her that she's not able to trust him to let him in. But he's also, his reaction is very, are you serious? It's me, Kirby. It culminates in Ghostface coming in and attacking Charlie. It's really a well-played moment, especially on, on Kirby's part. Um, there's this moment where she chokes up and she's like, I can't. And like, it just, it's very, very well played. And, um, it, it then comes up in this moment where you have Charlie, it's revealed he's tied up very similar to Steve and the first scream. Um, so many great throwback sequences here, throwback moments, hat tips to the original film. And this is definitely one of them. Um, and so you do launch into this moment, which I think has become one of the fan favorite moments of the film where you have Kirby ends up on the phone with, with, with Ghostface, And it's very, again, it's very uh, reminiscent of like the Casey Becker sequence where she's being asked questions about horror movies and they're all, you know, a lot of it's sequel based. And so she, she, she breaks down into this spiel where she just starts rattling off um, all of these sequels, she cuts off the question before it can even be finished because the uh, ghost face starts asking her, what's like, what's the sequel of the groundbreaking horror film that blah, blah, blah. And she just starts rattling off these titles. And she's, I mean, she's barely even having a break or a pause and that she's just naming movie after movie after movie after movie. And you're realizing just how many films like classic horror films that have been remade. And it, it is, it's a, it's a really fun moment that I think a lot of horror film fans can appreciate. And it's expertly, delivered by Hayden Panettiere. Oh my God. Yeah. She's incredible in this moment. Absolutely incredible. But yeah. She rattles off all of the horror remakes that came out in the 2000, early two thousands to late two thousands. Everything. She even says piranha 
I, when a stranger calls, all of them, I spit on your grave. Uh, and then the ghost face doesn't answer her. So she assumes that she got the question right. I don't know. I still got these people, you know, for, for every smart decision or smart thing that characters say or do, they do something completely stupid and like, I'm sorry. Uh, I've seen this person brutally murder several of my friends. Am I really going to trust them enough to now think that just because I answered a question right, that they're going to let me live if I go outside? Apparently, though, that's the thought process because she immediately says, I won. I got it right. And she goes outside to untie untie Charlie, which ends up being a horrible decision. I don't want to say it leads to her demise because it doesn't because she's back for Scream 6. But this is our first killer reveal. She unties Charlie and he immediately repays her by saying, this is a move, Kirby. And he stabs her in the stomach with this big fucking butcher knife. And he, I mean, this is such an aggressive, like really shocking moment because he's like, for four years, we've been in the same classes and you're just remembering me now. You're just noticing me now, you stupid bitch. And he stabs her again. And he's like, yeah, shh, they're there. I know it doesn't happen as fast as it does in the movies, does it? And he like lets her fall to the ground and we get the shot of her like writhing on the ground as all the blood's pouring out. Technically, we don't see her die. It was believed, though, for a, a like a good. I mean, fans know how long we thought that she had died, and it was we were upset. I feel like if people wouldn't have brought that up to bring Kirby back, they probably would not have done it because it's not even mentioned like at the end of Scream Four that she's still alive. Because even Jill asks about Kirby, and, and there's no Dewey does not say. Oh, well, Kirby's still alive. So I think she was meant to be dead. And the fanfare about getting hated Pat here was back was so was so intense that the filmmakers did it. I mean, fine. It's fine. We don't see her die. I don't I still I don't believe that she would have survived. Did you see the size of that fucking knife he shoves in her stomach? Oh and like, let's just talk about the moment in general, man. I mean, like uh, they were building, they were developing this great character chemistry. I mean, the two of them have several key moments together and they play off each other really nicely. And the moment when he turns, when you realize that he fucking is you know, going to fucking kill her. I mean, I, that, that like literally a blow to the gut. I mean, like it, it, it's a moment where you're like, Oh fuck. Like, it, not that I wasn't suspecting his character, but how immediately like he turns so aggressively on her and, and so cruel to her. It made me pissed. It made me mad. Like I felt like she didn't deserve that. She's a character that, I mean, yes, she did let him in, earlier because she wasn't sure if he was the killer well she was fucking right so overall she like this is a character that's not really done anything shitty or wrong to anybody she's been a stand-up character the whole course of the film and, and for her to go out in such a cruel way um made me feel bad no it's it's like i said i use that word it's a very aggressive scene and, and it's just at least it's it's definitely effective. It's 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 almost like a heartbreaking scene because it's a betrayal of the of the worst kind. And even like you can tell in her face that she can't believe it. And she even says, Charlie, before he lets her fall, you know, it's just such a just shockingly brutal, de- technically demise for this Kirby character. Uh, when I could see why it left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths where they would assume then that maybe she didn't die so we can bring her back and maybe give her some redemption, even though it doesn't really happen in scream six. She's not given a lot to do in scream six, but yeah, definitely shocking. And I, I can't remember, you know, I think, I don't know if I suspected 
Charlie is a killer. When I first saw this film, I can't remember if I was like really, really surprised that he was, but it kind of made sense because when you think about who's left, it's either Trevor, Charlie, right? But I, I mean, it's a really good, I think, way to reveal a killer because 99, I mean, I think every other killer reveal in the film with the exception of maybe, or in the franchise with the exception of Debbie Salt is actually an unmasking, like Ghostface taking off the mask to reveal who it is. Charlie's reveal is not that. I mean, it's, he's not, he's not in a ghost face outfit. He just suddenly stabs, suddenly stabs her. And that's how it's revealed that he's a killer. And I think it's quite effective. Now Sydney's still in the house looking for Jill and all of a sudden she's attacked by Charlie and he is like in full killer mode. He's like has the uh, knife against her neck and she like throws herself back so that he smashes into the wall and she runs downstairs and just she's running out the and she's going towards the front door. Another ghost face in costume steps out and stabs her. And now this is when we get the traditional mask off killer reveal. Roger. And to me, probably one of the more shocking killer reveals in the entire franchise. I don't think I was expecting this at all when I first saw this, but Ghostface pulls the mask off and it is fucking Jill. I have more fun with this, this killer reveal than I even have with the original. The original is is intense and the original in the sense of like a slasher, like it's a great fucking reveal. But this, where they go with it, how big they let her get with it, um, I would say it's one of the best slasher reveals in slasher history. I mean, honestly, if you're looking for something that is going to surprise me, it threw me for a loop. I was not prepared when I first saw this. And it holds the fuck up. And yeah, it's a big reaction. But you know what? My favorite slasher reveals are, are big reactions from people. I mean, look at fucking um, Urban Legend. My God. I mean, one of my favorites. Rebecca. God damn it. She's so fucking good. And this, I would say, is is along the lines of that kind of extreme. I mean, Emma Roberts just fucking goes for it and she's chewing on the, the scenery in the best fucking possible way because up to this point she's been very like meek and squeaky and innocent and she just completely goes someplace different with it and and this, yeah the sense of surprise shock factor not was not at all expecting it and i i really think this is the best reveal with the most creative and well thought out intentionality and mentality behind why every other reveal has always been like it's always come back to maureen prescott this is a completely selfish self-obsessed motivation it's not really related to any of the events that have happened prior other than the jealousy that sydney had all of this attention from you know what had happened to her she became kind of like the focus of the family and and so Jill wanted that kind of that level of fame, but she wants it on her terms and she wants more of it. And it's just, it's so different from all of the other reasons that we get from the franchise. And because of that, it feels so fresh and it holds the fuck up. It is a shocking reveal. Emma Roberts up until this point was known as kind of playing the, the, the sweet, you know, innocent girl. This was, this was quite a departure from that. And, you know, the film was setting her up almost to be like the next Sydney and, and to throw this loop in, I feel like it was so 
so smart. And I think it was like the closest the the franchise ever got to like being Sydney's the killer because we know that has been predicted or people have wanted Sydney to become the killer, right? We've heard that. We we keep hearing that. Oh, if they're going to bring Sydney back, the, the only the, the only thing they they could possibly do different is make her the killer. It's always every time a new scream film is is announced, it's oh Sydney's going to be the killer this time. It's fun. And I, like this is the this was like Kevin Williamson recognizing that people kind of want to see that they want to see the good girl go bad. And instead of actually making it Sydney, it was quite smart of him to take who was supposed to be the new Sydney ushering in this new trilogy of films and make her the killer. Not only that, I mean, it's fucking Sydney Prescott. It's her blood relative, you know? I mean, so for, for this reveal to, to go where it did and we find out, yeah, that Emma, that, that Jill has been extremely jealous of Sydney's fame and her motivation, the speech that she gives about how, yeah, she wants her 15 minutes of fame. People are famous now for doing nothing. They just have to have something shitty happen to them and, and, and post it on the internet. Then they're going to, they're going to be famous. Uh, when she, I, I love the whole thing. She says, she's like, what am I supposed to do? Go to college work? Like she's like, she's n- n- above that. And she has, she's so like soulless and like into her herself and like her, like, I mean, just it's all about her. It's it's a selfishness that that we see now even worse with social media stars and people like being like doing ridiculous things just so they could become internet famous. Between this and honestly, I think the way they kind of handled Robbie's um, like technical updates to the franchise, like the usage of his like you know his his camera mount and his basically his his being a vlogger i mean which is very like you look at tiktok like everybody who wants to be anybody is going through that method of like live streaming social media this movie is uh if anything i think was ahead of its time it was maybe so early on in the in the overall progression of where social media was going i i don't even think they knew how fast all of these things would actually evolve that like there's a line that he says in the movie he's like yeah like you know pretty soon everybody's going to be uploading everything they film and that's exactly the fucking case i mean the presence of social media in this movie uh, it's not constant but there's enough of it that it's very much acknowledged that this is the evolution of where things are going and it's absolutely fucking right and her hunger for fame if you look at where we're at with our society now i mean the, the the key elements the upgrades that this this film brought to the franchise in the sense of bringing it into the new millennium dead fucking on i mean this film kind of in a lot of ways almost predicted where things were going uh and it's it's crazy to me just how well this all really aged with time i mean the material that's brought forward here in in several aspects of, of the script and, and what happens and what the revelations are within the characters and what the outcome is i i really think that they kind of hit the fucking nail on the head and you come back and you revisit this film now and it does not feel like dated at all. This film feels like you could technically almost drop it today. And aside from the dated cell phones that they're using, everything else feels so very current and relatable. And I think that's really shows a good, a sign of good filmmaking and good writing. 
Yeah, no, the, it was ahead of its time. And the motivation definitely, I think, is it was ahead of its time. And maybe it didn't resonate with people back then when it first came out because it was such a new concept of, of people being like influencers and digital creators or whatever, all these shit that people think they are because they post a few videos on, you know, Instagram or YouTube and get a few likes and all of a sudden they're an influencer or a digital creator. And so now they're doing whatever they can to, to get this fame. This is, I mean, so, so, so relevant now, way more now. And I think that's why people are going back and revisiting this film. And at least even if they don't like the film, they're recognizing that that Jill, her character and the motivation behind everything she does is relevant. And you know how she plays it like it's she's like i said she's soulless she has one thing in mind and it's being famous she thinks she deserves to be famous i mean she even says i even had to kill my mom you know big loss there whatever i mean this is a bitch that would stop at nothing and you know and i think that's i i'm so glad that the jill character is finally getting and emma roberts's performance is finally getting like the the praise that I think it deserves because if you look up any like lists of like the best scream killers in the franchise, she's number one on a lot of lists surprisingly. And I can see why, because what this girl does to try to achieve her ultimate goal is, is just, wow. I mean, not only does she, you know, just poor Charlie has been charmed by her because they're going to pull the same Stu mocker, Billy Loomis thing where, you know, he's going to stab, uh, you know, remember how Billy was going to stab Stu to make it look like he was attacked. Well, she's going to do the same thing to Charlie and the exact same thing happens. She stabs Charlie right in the fucking heart. And he tells her that wasn't, that wasn't the plan. And Sydney's like, Oh, you, you said it yourself. You're Stu. She's Billy. Uh, and, and, and as he's dying, she even tells him, she's like, you know, what the media loves even more is a soul survivor. Just ask, you know, who, and, and Sydney says, my God, you'd kill your friends too. And she's like, friends, you don't get it. Do you? I don't need friends. I need fans. Such a fucking iconic line. The, the whole monologue she gives is truly like, I mean, just expertly delivered. And like some of the places she goes with it is she's shrieking and just, you know, she hits these pitches with her voice. That just sounds like, it sounds twisted and maniacal, but also very bratty. Like there's still a very like, like self-obsessed teenage element to what she's saying that um, makes her almost more like unpredictable and intimidating because she's just so self-obsessed. Yeah, it's it's an it's an expertly delivered sequence. And then after this whole thing where she, you know, they they bring out Trevor, she shoots him in the fucking dick. Uh, before shooting him in the head in a like a very graphic shot where you see the whole thing. I mean, you see him pleading for his life and then she fires. You see the blood spray like just behind his head and the bullet whole form in the in the right in the middle of his forehead. And it's just like I know you normally don't like gun sequences in slashers, but they, they use it well here and they don't overuse it. And it's a very, very graphic kill. No, this one I don't mind. And um yeah, so their whole plan was they're gonna frame Trevor. They're gonna frame Trevor for for the murders. And so they, they have meticulously have everything planned where things are all the video, all the kill videos are going to be uploaded onto Trevor's devices so that it looks like he did it. And, you know, as, 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 as she is revealing like her motive to, to Sydney, she tells her, I don't want to, I don't want to be like you. I want to become you, you know, and the world, they want another survivor. They want another star. And you know what? Your ingenue days 
well, they're over. And then she stabs Sydney in the gut. And I, I, she delivers this line and she does it so great where she, where as Sydney gets ready to collapse, she's like, don't tell me you didn't think this would happen eventually. I mean, it's just so cold. So cold, so cold. The fact that she dispatches everybody, both like, you know, her family and then the people who are her friends, her co-conspirator. I mean, like they're all disposable to her. And then when everybody is dead or so she thinks she then has what is probably one of the most memorable moments in the film, this whole sequence where she begins to parade around the house and completely just physically abuse herself as she throws herself into picture frames and rips out hair and throws herself into glass tables. It is so violent. And unlike anything we've seen from the Scream franchise thus far, I've got to give kudos to the fact they go a completely different direction with what they do here. Oh yeah. We've never seen a killer this unhinged. This Jill is the most unhinged Scream killer we've ever gotten. I mean, this girl is unpredictable. She... I mean, the, th- the shit she does, not only here, but in the hospital scene, it's like, Jesus, fuck, this girl is ruthless, fucking ruthless. I mean, we see her put herself through fucking the ringer. Yeah, she gra- takes Trevor's hand and rips some of her hair out, scratches her cheek with his hand, takes a knife and runs into a wall with it. So it goes into her shoulder, slams herself through pictures to the through the glass coffee table and then gets up and collapses next to Sydney just as the cops show up. And there's this moment before we get cut to this hospital scene where she's being wheeled out and like all of these reporters are like in her face asking her, "Oh Jill, what's it feel like to be, you know, a hero and stuff?" And she's just she's just smiling. You can see in her her face she's like, "Yes, I finally did it." I would have loved Roger and I don't know how you feel, even though I love this hospital scene. I feel like the film could have been more effective if it would have ended here, le- leaving the audience with like thinking that Jill is going to get what she wanted. Uh, and so then if they ever made a Scream 5, it would have had to pick up here. But instead, they tack on this hospital scene, which to me very much feels like Black Christmas Remake 2.0. I have the same note. I mean, you you can't tell me they did not see Black Christmas and come up with this ending. I don't understand the purpose for this ending, to be honest with you. It's a lot of fun, don't get me wrong. And and I guess it gives us the idea that Sydney's still alive, which if they would have ended the film with her being wheeled out of the house, we would not have known that. But like this just feels so like tacked on. And I love the fact that Jill's character even mentions that in kind of a wink wink way where she's like Oh my God, Sydney, you just don't fucking die, do you? This should have ended at the house. This is just getting silly. I'll say, I, I mean, for me, I get what people th- say when they think it feels tacked on, but it's one of my favorite conclusions of the franchise. I love that she thinks that everything has worked out in her favor. And then you have this moment where Dewey's like, but, she, but Sydney's a fighter and there's a chance she might pull through. And you could, you could hear her heartbeat start to elevate you know, on the machine because she's hooked up to the machine. And so you hear it start picking up because she realizes, holy fuck, like she's still, she's still fucking alive. But it's, it feels so true and so right for Sydney's character. Like Sydney's character is a fighter. And if this is how Sydney would have gone out, I would have felt it was kind of hollow and incomplete. I don't want Jill's character to win. I mean, she's a really great character, but like, 
I want, if, if Sydney's going to go down, I definitely don't want it going down in this kind of almost disgraceful way where she's completely just insulted by this fucking punk ass girl. Like, no, like Sydney deserves that fucking, uh, uh, defibrillator kill. <laughs> I mean, she deserves, like, that is one of my favorite fucking moments in the movie. And the fact that everybody comes back in for it, like, I love it. Well, I think it would have set up a sequel, a Scream 5 sequel, a lot better if it would have ended before this hospital scene. But I get what you're saying. Because they had no idea that the film was going to flop at the box office. So it just feels weird that they like went with this particular ending that kind of put a nail in any of Jill coming back's coffin when it was set up for her like to, to, to be the new like focal point of the franchise but i get it i love this whole yes because it's also revealed that jill slips up and tells dewey that she wants gail to um to write a book with her because now they have matching wounds it's a slip up that she makes and yeah when she finds out sydney's still alive you can tell she's totally like oh fuck and so she like once dewey leaves she rips everything out of her body all the all the hospital tubes and she goes right to fucking sydney's room in the meantime, Dewey goes into Gail and he's like, oh, you know, she's going to be fine. She's a she's a tough kid. And, you know, she wants to write a book with you because you guys have matching wounds. And and Gail's like, what? She was stabbed in the shoulder, too. And Dewey says, yeah. And Gail says, well, how does she know I was? Which is very true. She would not have known that. And Gail clicks with Dewey. Oh, fuck. But I mean. Jill goes right into fucking Sydney's room. and She's like, you just won't fucking die, will you? And you, we get this fucking fun i mean fights and she gets on top of she gets on top of sydney she starts choking her like sydney punches her in the face and like gouges her eye jill like kicks her in the stomach and like rips her stitches out uh i know it's cringy she's like how do you like these stitches and she rips and then dewey comes mumbling in and (laughs) she fucking beats dewey to a pulp with a fucking bedpan it's the most brutalized you see Sidney Prescott end up at the end of a, of a scream film. Like this is the, the most, the closest to the cusp of death she's ever come. And the fact that then that like Emma Robertson comes back for seconds and puts her through more, like seeing the blood coming out of the stitches when she's punching her in the gut. I mean, you're just like, Oh my God, like this poor fucking woman. But and it, it also just shows how fucking crazy Jill is, but she thinks she's going to get away with it now. Like it's been like, you're fucked. Like, and, he, and Sydney even tells her, you're not going to, you're, you're screwed. There's no way you're getting out of this. But she, in her mind, she thinks she's still going to get out of it. And she's still going to get all the fame. Um, and, and then Gail Waltz is in and, you know, Waltz stumbles upon the scene. And just as Jill can do anything, fucking deputy Hicks pushes, charges into the room and pushes Gail out of the way. I actually love that moment because they've had such like a, they've kind of been butting heads the whole film. Not the whole film. They only have a few moments together. But I love the fact that like Gail is about to get shot and, and Judy fucking Hicks just dives in there and fucking pushes her out of the way and saves her fucking ass. And then ends up getting shot as well when she throws her gun over She because, uh, you know, Jill is threatening to, to shoot Dewey uh, unless Judy throws her gun over. So she does. And as soon as she does... Jill shoots her in the fucking shoulder and it looks like she's killed for a moment. And you're like, Oh my God, like this girl is just killing fucking everybody. Oh yeah. And then she demands that Gail get her skinny ass, get your skinny ass over here. 
and she's getting ready. She's like, I'm going to enjoy blowing your head off. In the meantime, we see that Sydney is turning on the defibrillator machine again, black Christmas remake. And, you know, Gail's walking slowly towards, um, Jill. And, and she says, before you do anything, can I at least have one last word? And Jill's like, what, please. And Gail says, no, clear, clear. And all of a sudden, Sydney pops up and says, clear, and fucking defibrillates her head. <laughs> it is it is satisfying. It is fucking it is. satisfying. And the fact that this girl gets back up again is like, honestly, it is like, are you fucking kidding me? But you know what? Good. Good. Like, if anyone gets to, deserves to get back up one more time, it's fucking Emma Roberts in this movie. And she does. And like in the, you know, they're all, they're all comforting Dewey and checking up on each other. And you've got this moment where you got fucking Judy Hicks revealing, you know, what was it? Wear the vest, save, save your chest. chest. And then she fucking she collapses. <laughs> dramatic. It's so dramatic, but I love it. And you got this whole moment where they're talking about the killers always coming up right behind you and thinking fast. Now fucking Campbell turns around and fires a, gu- a bullet right into goddamn fucking Jill's chest and boom. She drops. It's not in her head. I'll say that. But it is in her chest, so I do think she's dead. Well, you know, there's all that talk now about Emma Roberts supposedly saying that she would want to, she'd be open to coming back for Scream 7 because, yeah, I don't know. I I think it gets a little ridiculous, but like people have survived worse in these fucking movies. There's all these people saying that that Stu's still alive. I'm like, oh, please fucking stop it. Stop it. But no, yeah, and Sydney lays next to to Jill and looks at her dead body and says, I don't know about you, but I feel a lot better already. And then you get this kind of bittersweet moment where nobody outside, none of the reporters outside know anything that just happened. So they're all reporting on America's new sweetheart, Jill Roberts. Everyone will know her name come tomorrow morning. I love this ending where you have all the news reporters who've not yet been updated in like the turn of events. And so they're reporting that she's some kind of hero and it cuts to that shot of her just laying there dead. It's like, it is the most for a film that feels like I said at the start of this, the most like the original film in this franchise in so many ways, it seems to capture the tone and energy. It also manages to completely go against expectations and honestly provide you with some several really like unique plot twists and developments that you don't really anticipate it does keep you on your toes and so when this conclusion comes around it it feels unlike anything else in the franchise and it manages to deliver a really unique finale that feels very true to scream but completely like its own thing and i really really appreciate that about this film and in a series that at times feels like it's kind of on a repeat formula a lot of elements of, of Scream 4 do not feel that way. It feels like it's very much its its own story. It's It knows the story it's trying to tell. You know, even though there are maybe a few characters or a few elements that feel like they're kind of shoehorned in, the core story that's being told here is very coherent. This script, as we've said before, very tight, and it's very intentional with what it's doing and how it's telling it. And it, it by the time you get to this final moment, I really think this film has served up something very satisfying. I'm almost confused by just slasher fans in general who don't see the appeal in this film because it's a gory, violent, high body count movie with some really great character moments. I mean, like, what is there really to truly hate on about this movie? It it, it throws me when I hear fans of the, of the series who do not like this film. 
Well, you know what? That's what we that's what we want to hear because I I get confused too because out of the all of the films in the franchise, it, it is the one that seems like it is kind of it's can stand alone. Uh, even though I mean I don't mean that as though like you you watch it and can't watch. I'm saying it's like it feels like I think what you said it, it feels like it could it's its own thing. Like they tried to do something a little bit different that wasn't the cookie cutter repeats that we seem to get with the killer motivation, the killer reveals, the opening scenes. Yes, they really paralleled a lot of the original two films, the first one particularly. But again, they they do something fresh with it. They subvert our expectations. Like the film very much sets up to be like, oh, it's going to be. It's going to be the boyfriend again. It's going to be Trevor. And it's not. And you would never, ever in a million years think that Jill would be in on this. And so they try to do something different. Her motivation is not, like you said, it's not rooted in anything that has to do with with Woodsboro or Marine Prescott or anything like that. Uh, it's she's just wants fucking fame. And if you look at it from the perspective of even like Scream 5 and Scream 6, different directors they still followed the very much cookie cutter formula i mean scream five i liked it but let's be honest it's basically a remake a retelling of scream one beat for beat scream six loved it loved the new york setting loved it but it let's let's be honest it's very much parallel scream two right up and i mean even with the killer reveals and everything scream four feels like it's kind of its own thing and with the jill character you just don't have a character like that in the scream universe very unique i mean we get to we get to see just how fucking crazy this girl is i don't know i guess guys if you aren't a fan of scream 4 or if it's one of your least favorite in the franchise i can't believe that someone would like scream 3 better than scream 4 but i guess people out there exist that do um let us know why because we're, we're generally curious i i don't know how i would rank this in my rankings though because i i, I would say Whew. I mean, watching it, I have, you know, uh, a much higher appreciation for it. Even I think each time I see it, I, I like it better, but I wouldn't even know where to rank it because I still think like Scream 2 is still probably my my favorite. And then Scream, Scream 6, Scream 4 would be kind of neck and neck. I feel like this is my second favorite in the franchise. And I, I, I've felt that for a while, but revisiting it, it reestablishes it for me. Um, there's something about this film I really, really like. I think it's the balance, the the even balance you get through the focal, through the full between the focal characters. I feel like everybody is given a chance to feel utilized here. I'm, at least with the you know the, the legacy characters, the ones I really care about, because there are some movies where Sydney feels underutilized. There are some movies where you know Gail feels underutilized, but he, not here. They all have moments to shine, and I really. Um, I appreciate how their character arcs develop both together and on their own. Um, and I think it's one of the more, though, though it's a very fun movie at times, it's one of the more somber entries in the series, especially with Sydney's character development and what she's internalizing. And I think Nev Campbell, as always, you know, she, she's constantly constantly bringing an element of realism and believability to the character of Sidney Prescott, but in this one more so than ever, I think. And, and I do feel like this feels like one of the truest entries to the franchise and in, in, in a series that does at times stray a little bit, it, it's not always smooth sailing with scream. It is consistent. And this, I do think is one of the most consistent overall entries. So, I mean, I do have a few, few little issues with it. 
Um, but overall, I I find this film to be so fucking enjoyable. Um, and I'm always eager to sit back down with it. So getting to talk about it was really, really entertaining. I'm so happy we did finally tackle it because, yeah, man, I mean, this is one of my favorite slashers for a lot of reasons. I can see that. I can see that. It's there. Yeah, there are there are things that I if it were me, I could go back and fix with this film. I would definitely do that. But like, no, I mean, I think I mean, this is this is Sydney Prescott at her at her best. This is Gail Weathers possibly at her best uh, with the exception of part two. Um, You get, you know. I think Jill being the killer is like the ultimate betrayal um, of any of the killer reveals for Sydney. I mean, okay, Billy was her boyfriend, big, big deal. Like they were high school sweethearts. Okay, whatever. She didn't really know Mrs. Loomis. She didn't know Mickey. She didn't know Roman existed. I mean, Jill is like flesh and blood to her. And for that, I mean, this it's, it's probably, like I said, the biggest betrayal that Sydney has encountered in, in this whole you know, predicament. I mean, she comes back for scream five, but she has no connection to any of those characters. So yeah, I mean, I, 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 I see, I can see why this would be your second favorite. It is a film. I will tell you, I like it. The more I watch it, the more I like it. And probably the more it would move up on my, my list of rankings for the franchise. So I really am curious guys, what are your thoughts on screen four? Where would you rank it? And if you don't like this film, because we did get, you know, a few comments when we were, you know, that, when people listened to our last episode, we mentioned that we were going to cover this, that they weren't fans of this one. So, so tell us why, I mean, you got Kirby, you got you know, deputy Hicks, you got all, what's not to like, what's not to like, you got Anna fucking Paquin. Come on. Come on. Truly. What, a great film. And if you don't like it, I want to fucking know why. And at least I'll know if, when I'm asking you this question, that there's a good chance you listen through the full episode. So I'll be satisfied either way. Um, but regardless, it's all been coming down to this. We've been talking about, you know, diving deeper into the franchise. I'm so happy that we did tackle this one because this is a pretty overall, we don't really tend to go beyond, I think, what is like the 2010. So this is a bit of a recent title for us, but like, how could we fucking not? Um, I think it was due time to cover this title. So yeah, I mean, I'm happy we talked about it. Yeah. Hopefully we did it justice guys. So, so let us know your thoughts. So Whew, another long one, two and a half hours. You, th- you really think it wasn't going to be a long one, Troy? I mean, come on now. I know, I knew. Think, think about it. I knew it was going to be a long one, but I'm glad we covered it. Well, on that note, Troy, I do think it was a lovely conversation, but for me, it's after midnight. <laughs> we've, been, we've been talking about Scream 4 for over two hours, and I'm fucking ready to pass out. Listeners, as always, we, we truly appreciate you, and we have some other good shit coming up real soon. Wouldn't you say so, Troy? Oh, absolutely. Remember, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. We've been checking and nobody's doing it. And we're going to get real pissed off here real quick. Real quick. I mean, listen, <laughs> we're going to start showing up on your doorsteps and pulling a goddamn uh, Emma Roberts on your asses if you don't fucking come through with it. Let me tell you right now. Oh, and and check out our Patreon because I have uh, the Scream Queen panel from the Houston Horror Film Festival with Felissa Rose and... Uh, Camille Keaton up, so check out the Patreon goodies. But yeah, uh, with that, we will be back next week. We will reveal the title in our Facebook group. Yes, we will. So join that fucking group and you'll get your up-to-dates. But other than that, guys, thank you for listening with this very long episode with a title that I think genuinely deserved it. Oh, absolutely. All right, guys. Good night. Good night.